good evening. up polo people welcome to the north side polo podcast i'm your host gavin here with my friends and teammates we got liam good day and alex is currently mid pizza slice can he get the words out yeah i can okay he's, <laughs> a, he's, perfection. he's a talented pizza slice eater that's how we do it here at the north side polo podcast we're eating pizza while we record and it doesn't even matter we stay hungry <laughs> yeah, we so are. true well, let's just jump into it. We got a long episode today, and I just want to say, if you are listening to this episode right now as you are driving to Rumble by the River, you are winning at life. Um, and we're thinking of you. This episode is dedicated to everyone who's listening while traveling to or from Rumble by the River. All right, Alex, what you got for the news? Well, the biggest news uh, this week, or I guess since the last episode, was uh, No Fun City happened. So we've got we've got some results. I think maybe this is a little premature, but I think there's a new win streak that's happening here. It's possible. Possible. I mean, it's not a streak if it's just two, but uh, I have a feeling this one's going to continue. The winners were Pete, Birdie, and Quinn, which sounds like a fantasy team. Like that honestly sounds like if I if I tried to draft the three best players in North America. It's inconceivable to me that they haven't played together before now. But uh, yeah, that's uh, back-to-back for Birdie. Absolutely. On a little bit of a streak. We'll see how long it lasts, but uh, another big win for them. And I heard No Fun City was just amazing from everyone I spoke to. Same. Yeah, none of us could make it, unfortunately. It definitely didn't live up to the name, though, because what from what I heard, everyone had a lot of fun. Yep. Well, they're going to have to change the name. Just false advertising. It's lots of loads of fun city. Boatloads of fun. Another tournament that was a lot of fun was uh, that uh, TTPO Rat Snitches tournament. And Liam, you actually went to that. Give us the Rat Snitches report. Yeah, I did. I went down to Boston Bike Polo. Sorry, I had to say it. And played in the one-day shuffle, TTPO Rat Snitches shuffle. A lot of people gave me crap for wanting to go to a one-day tournament. They're like, why would you drive that far? But, you know, I discovered it's actually closer to drive from Montreal to Boston than to Toronto. Um, you know, border crossing notwithstanding. So it actually wasn't that far. And I was joined by two club mates of mine here in Montreal, Mo and uh, Christine. I'm glad they came down. It was a lot of fun hanging out with them. And we played and we slayed on the shuffle tournament. It was like an ABC shuffle, sort of like the thaw was. I got to say the club, the like the court surface there is pretty damn tight. Like they've got a really nice setup. I've heard, you know, this is a recent development because they used to have an older I was talking to Addison, I think, or maybe um, Nick at Boston Bike Polo, and we were talking about sort of how the how it's been going and how they got this park redeveloped. Because now it's like you've got the polo court, which is all nicely paved, except for the Bruins logos on it. You have a nice, oh, like, relaxing. <laughs> yeah, you have a nice, relaxing uh, bench area, and then you got like a pump track just beyond it. Yeah, that you can go and hit when you're board or i don't know you want to try it and i took my polo bike on it it was kind of fun but yeah just an awesome club very cool people um i didn't do that well personally i was eliminated by my old uh 
team captain Olsen and his team who actually went on to win the entire tournament. It was, um, we didn't do very well in the bracket part, but I had a lot of fun. I was playing with, uh, Kevin from Rhode Island and Mars from Boston. So shout out to those two guys. It was really fun to play. I felt really, uh, felt pretty good on the bike and, um, we were doing some good plays and stuff. That's awesome. I love going down to Boston and playing tournaments there. I've always had good experiences, beautiful court outside of those ghastly logos, yeah. but, uh, yeah, just a great club and a great vibe. I also need to shout out our host, Charlotte, who put us up for both Saturday night and Sunday night in a very nice uh, lodging. So thank you, Charlotte. And nice. of course, thank you to Ben for organizing the the shuffle. I think it was his first time organizing a tournament and it went it went very well. So shout out to Ben and anyone else that I'm forgetting in, in Boston. By <laughs> well. I'll be back for sure. Like I'm hoping to go. I was We were supposed to go to the Commonwealth Classic last year. Like we signed up and everything we got in and then the, the board was closed. Right. I think I probably mentioned that in a previous episode. Um, but I really, really like to go back this year, but I know it's going to be popular because it's, that's, that's when they're like, yeah, we throw down for the Commonwealth classic. So. Yeah. That's like one of the biggest East coast tournaments nowadays eh, is the Commonwealth definitely. classic. That's definitely yeah, one yeah. of the marquee. Um, what about other tournaments though? We got bike pole calendar. Who wants to read off these next few big tournaments that are coming up that just popped up on the bike pole calendar.com list. Bike pole uh, calendar. I, I'll do some of these. So we got Emerald city open. That's Seattle, July, uh, 8th to 10th, uh, should be a, a fun tournament. The rip city shuffle, which is the Portland, July 16th and 17th. And I got to say the logo and all the artwork for the rip city, like with the, the trailblazers logo and all that yeah. it's like it's pretty sweet it's super well done uh, oh that just reminded me something about boston they they love the big rips down there in boston it's an east coast club absolutely yeah. for sure no it was yeah, yeah. sweet and especially like we played one last pickup game after the whole thing i think it was like addison was on there with some other people and we're just taking like just taking huge rips from anywhere on the court but the thing is they would go in <laughs> you know it's crazy it. there was like they would go in. I know, like, I was just picturing Gavin, you would probably be scolding people if they were, like, taking these big rips from anywhere. If they were on your team, you'd be like, that's not a good look. You can't, you don't, it's not going to go in. But then, like, yo, these would go in for sure. And they love the big rips there. So it was a lot of fun. Sorry, I interrupted. I'm sure Rip City, where is Rip City? Portland? It's yeah. Portland. Yeah, I'm yeah. sure. Well, I'm sure they they have big rips too. But Boston, shout out big rip culture. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Okay, what this last one here, a big one for us. Oh yeah, the Canadian Nationals. It's happening. Holy shit! It's in Calgary, it's August 27th and 28th. Cool. I guess it's a qualifier, eh? For the, it's going to be the Great Plains qualifier. But if you win, you get the honor of being the best Canadian team. I guess that showed up. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. It's Canadian Nationals, so it's national championship tournament, I suppose. And uh, you could also qualify for NAs. It's a squad tournament, and it sounds like a heck of a lot of fun. I know I'm planning to yeah, go. Definitely. And it's worth noting, Great Plains won the last North American Championship, so there's an extra True. spot up for grabs in this one. True. They get two spots. Shout they out with two spots. Yeah. Nice. So for today, we were lucky enough to have the honor of being graced by the presence of Mr. Aaron Hand of Enforcer Bikes. And he did a long interview with us about all things Enforcer Bike and Aaron Handisms that are going on in the world. So sit back, turn the volume up, and enjoy a few words from Aaron Hand. Here you go. 
Hey, Aaron Han, welcome uh, to the podcast. How are you today? Uh, thank you for having me. I feel like, I don't know, you guys have been doing this for so long and I haven't seen my name be pulled yet. So the fact that I actually got to come on here feels pretty amazing. It's weird to think we've been doing it for a long time. I feel like we just started this, like, you know, time has stood still for the last two years and like, it's been a week and this is still a new thing. The time warp from the pandemic, like till now is kind of incredible. I feel like I'm in the same place in life, same kind of deal, but obviously, <laughs> you know, two and a half years have gone by at this point and we're still making the podcast, which is a great thing. I think this yeah. is going to be episode 42, Aaron. So you made it before 50. Wow. That's a great number. Is that Jackie Robinson's number? You probably don't know to, baseball up there. <laughs> I have to check. I definitely don't know anything about baseball. I just watched the like uh, six-hour documentary on Dave Steeb. So I feel like I know significantly more about baseball than I did a week ago, but I still don't know anything about baseball. This name means <laughs> nothing to me. Dave Steeb, what? He belongs in the Hall of Fame. That was the whole point of this documentary. Okay. One of those And That's all I know about baseball, so I am going to take their side. One sport we know a lot about, though, is bike polo. Well, we pretend to know a lot about, I should say. Great transition. Love yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> hey, that's what I mean. That's why they pay me the big bucks on the podcast. Okay. Or, uh, uh never mind. stickers. Yeah. Yeah. I get, <laughs> I get stickers. Um, but uh, we're really happy to have the podcast. This completes the trifecta of more sugar. We've had Aaron, we've had Pete, we've had Diego. And that's awesome because I know more sugar is one of our favorite teams. One question we always ask people we have on the podcast just to get the ball rolling is to tell us a little bit about, you know, how they got into bike pole, because those are always really interesting stories and weird stories. So Aaron, yeah. How did you get into bike pole? how did you find this game? Uh, let's see here. So this goes back to 2011, I think me and some friends, maybe 2010. I honestly can't remember. It's been so long now, but yeah, me and some friends were like in a little fixed gear riding group in Columbia, Missouri. That's where I went to college. Uh, we went, graduated and just, you know, just kind of hanging around after graduation, you know, I was delivering pizza, just hanging out with my friends, riding bikes around. Yeah. We had our little fixed gear group. We call ourselves no coast bike club or something like that. I can't remember <laughs> what it was, but, uh, yeah. So yeah, we had our little fixed gear group and then we've heard about kids playing bike polo, like on this parking garage, like maybe like friends of friends were like involved in it. And it's just kind of like there was, you know, in our group, there's maybe like six of us little fixed gear kids. And we went there and we we're like, let's just go check it out sometime. And I would say five out of six of us like fell in love with it. Um, we just kept going back for me personally, like similar to kind of Sean Ingram's story on his episode. Like I was into the DIY culture. Um, I love the DIY aspect of it. I mean, at the time, everyone's just like making mallets out of like hacked things and stealing mm -hmm. things to make mallets. And the bikes were just like Franken bikes. Yeah. And I was also when I was younger, really into competitive sports. And then when I got to high school, like everything got too serious. Like, you know, coaches would just got like became assholes and like making you do all this shit I didn't want to do. So it was like this perfect middle ground of like this DIY culture and like group sports that I really enjoyed. Um, obviously I was really into bikes at the time being part of like a little fixed gear group. So it just kind of like checked all these boxes for me. And um, in our club, we had Pete Abram was already an established player in that club at the time. Um, we also had Nick Cruz, who I'm not sure if you all are familiar with, but oh, yeah. that dude was still around. He'd be MVP of like every tournament. 
Um, we also had Charlie Hill, which is like he was like a big deal at the time. There's just lots of really good players. And I just got lucky that I got to learn from so many good players, like in a club that I started on. I think, you know, starting on a club that had so many established players, it just made it easy for me to kind of rise up quickly and learn a lot. It, it's funny. I think everyone, when they start playing polo, thinks that their club has a lot of really good players. Like, it doesn't matter what the club is. Like, n- not to not to throw any shade on Ottawa, but like when we started, I thought the Valley Boys were like the best team in North and the Valley Boys in Ottawa, because there's another Valley Boys team from uh, Phoenix now. Um, the, they don't even have the name anymore. But the Ottawa Valley Boys, I thought they were like the best team ever. And uh, I was shocked to learn that there's, in fact, many, many better teams in North America. Um, but I feel like the names you just listed are legitimately, even if you were to take a, a slice of like the North American pie, that's like... This very, guy's very throwing shade at Ottawa now. We have some legends <laughs> from Ottawa. What are you talking about? Anyways, yeah. There's sorry, lots of I legends in Ottawa, that. but not not when when we first started. That's true. Yeah, and on top of that, like Nick Cruz and like Pete Avon were obviously like the best players in the club. And like they had completely opposite playing styles. They still do, you know, like it never like kind of merged towards each other. So like learning from two like completely different playing styles at the same time was super helpful. Like seeing, like taking aspects from each of them and learning. And uh, outside of that, like I mentioned, there was five of us that really kind of caught the bike polo bug from the fixed gear group. So, you know, like that's almost a game of brand new players right there. So like we would Mm -hmm. go out just us five super dedicated and all we need was like one other person from the club Mm -hmm. to come out one night and like help us out. And that helped really push me and the others Um, having five of us, you know, we're kind of competitive and like, Oh, I want to be better (laughs) than him. I want to be better than him. I've got to get, I got to keep going, got to keep trying. So there's just a lot of things that happen to click in the right way that made me really into bike polo and you know allowed me to establish my abilities rather quickly in a way that like got me addicted to it what happened to this six guy yeah uh, <laughs> i don't know he just never really got into bike polo he just like what's wrong with him i know yeah. he, he came out a time or two and would try it but i don't know he just didn't catch the bug maybe he wasn't like a team sports kind of person Fair. And there's people out there that just prefer individual sports or doing other stuff or not sports. You know what I mean? So yeah, totally understandable. So where do you play now? What's kind of your home base? How often do you play these kinds of things? I would still consider Portland my home base, even though I haven't lived there for two years. <laughs> and that's only because like I'm away at grad school right now. I'm in San Marcos, Texas, which is about you know, 40 minutes south of Austin. So I definitely go up to play in Austin every once in a while. It just depends on how much free time I have because grad school is pretty grueling. But um, I there's like an end date to my program. Like I have one year left. And after that, like, I mean, as of right now, the plan is to go back to Portland. So I consider I'm just kind of away from my home club. So I just still consider myself a Portland bike polo player, just kind of away playing. That's cool. What are you doing in grad school? Currently, I'm studying creative writing, so I'm getting an MFA, Master in Fine Arts in Creative Writing, with an emphasis on poetry. Um, so yeah, basically just writing poems, reading books. Yeah, That's yeah, so and this cool. this blends perfectly. And you were telling me a little bit about your podcast before we actually started recording. And I think you know it's a good opportunity to shout that out as we're on the create creative writing style of this. So why don't you explain a bit about what that podcast is and how people can find it? Totally. So. I host a podcast called The Personhood Project, 
And basically, it's kind of like a poetry exchange that connects incarcerated writers to a larger poetry community. So I would say the body of the podcast is me sitting down with an established poet, someone who's kind of out in the world, has books published, is like a name in the poetry community. And then we kind of discuss what poetry has done for them in terms of like how it's helped them process trauma, lead towards personal growth. And the larger idea is that when I go in as part of like the the podcast that isn't recorded, like the back end of things, I go in and like teach classes and work with incarcerated writers, like teaching them how to do creative writing. We use kind of this established poet as inspiration for the writing that we do inside each class. And then I take those poems and then we discuss them with the established poet. So I'm trying to like, you know, use this established poet as an example for these incarcerated writers so they can see like, hey, poetry can be a tool that I can use, um, you know, to help me work through things, especially in a world when, you know, look, I don't know if it's the same up there in Canada, but at least in the US, it's like, it's frowned upon for men to, you know, process feelings or show emotions. And it, you know, it leads to a lot of negative things. And that's why so many people, I mean, there's a lot of reasons, but that can lead towards people being incarcerated. So just trying to help them see other outlets and helping, you know, reduce recidivism in the carceral system is kind of our main goal. That's so cool. Yeah. Very important cause to reduce that recidivism. <clears throat> I mean, incarceration is a huge issue across states and in Canada too, and men and not expressing their feelings properly and not even having the language to express them properly because no one's ever talked to them about their feelings exactly. is a massive issue north and south of the border. I think that's an amazing project and I'm definitely going to start listening to that. I encourage our listeners yeah. to check it out. What was that called again? Yeah, the Personhood Project. You can find it on pretty much all the streaming platforms nowadays. You know, Apple, Amazon, whatever, Google, Spotify, whatever. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that's uh, that's sponsored by Enforcer Bikes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was so ironic when you were talking before. We're going to get to kind of the meat of the interview here, but uh, you said, you know, I fell in love with the DIY aspect of bike polo. I love yeah. Franken bikes. <laughs> But Aaron, I mean, you're famous for this, well, many things in bike pool, but (laughs) one of the bigger ones is enforcer bikes. For for, for the record, I first heard about Aaron because of the prospectors. I just want to like throw it out there. That was like, there you go. Your reputation as a player preceded your reputation (laughs) as a, as a manufacturer or a a frame builder for me. But uh, I did also want to mention that I think you have a special place in relation to this podcast too, because the first bike polo podcast we ever listened to, I think you went on the shuffle podcast and we played That's that true. driving back from like our first Halloween tournament. I don't know how long ago that was, but you, I think it just started the enforcer bikes and we're talking to Caleb about that. And I remember listening to that with Gavin in the car, like, damn, this bike polo podcast stuff is really cool. Like I can't wait for more of it to come out. Um, I don't know if that's true, but I'm just going to ex- agree with you. But I honestly don't remember if I was on that podcast. Okay. Maybe well, I was. It's, it's an elaborate false memory. It's an elaborate <laughs> false memory if you did, if you weren't on it. <laughs> I mean, I feel like that's been so long ago that I don't remember. So, yeah, <laughs> it could have definitely happened. Yeah, yeah. We're just picking up the seconds from the Shuffle podcast. And those guys did it great. <laughs> but, yeah, I thought it was ironic. You were saying DIY style. And there you are. You're the person who's like, given so many people polo specific frames and kind of, I know in our region of 
the world. You can't go to a tournament without half the bikes being enforcers at this point. So I, I just, I guess we'll start there. Like, where did this idea to do this come from and how did it happen? It started, do you all know 321 Polo was that still like the blog oh, yeah. was still a thing? Yeah. yeah. So when 321 Polo first started, like Sean Ingram, Fixcraft, they were running 321 Polo. And at that time, I was, you know, just like writing pieces every once in a while for them because I was interested in writing and kind of journalism and just kind of like getting more established credits out in the world. So I did a piece that was interviewing Marino. And actually, let me go back before that. I, let's see. So the timeline just gets so like crazy trying to <laughs> picture everything. Let's go even before that. I'm just throwing back all these old school relics, but League of Bike Polo. So on League of Bike Polo, there was, you know, some talk going around about someone in Peru who would make a custom bike for you. And it was only like 350 bucks or something crazy cheap. And there was just a lot of people that were just super skeptical and just like, are we just going to, is that just like throwing your money away? Is this actually going (laughs) to lead to something? And they're just like, people weren't sure. And at the time I was like invested enough in bike polo that I wanted a custom bike or I wanted a bike polo bike, but only Mm -hmm. thing out there at the time was the joust. And I couldn't afford like $1,200 on a joust or whatever Mm -hmm. they cost. The fleet velo, right? Yeah, exactly. Fleet velo joust. So I just like gambled and I said, I'll try Mm -hmm. it out. And I, so I, sat down and I kind of designed my own bike and I sent it off to this random person in Peru with some I was gonna money. Say, that and... sounds like a pretty big step. How did you it? It was. Yeah. So I think, <laughs> I don't know. So, I mean, like I just kind of gambled and trusted it would work out. And I think I was one of the very first people in North American bike polo to like test it out and try one. And because it worked out and I got a bike and I built it up and it felt great um, Sean was running three, two, one polo at that time. And he wanted to do a bike check. He was doing those bike checks where he'd have pictures mm-hmm. of the bikes and people just talking about all their components and things like that. Mm-hmm. This gets me back to the point I was talking about earlier from there. After my bike check, I reached out to Sean. I was like, Hey, I'd really like to write an article. That's a me interviewing Marino just to help get word out there for him because this bike is really cool. And I think other people could, you know, you know, <laughs> learn from what he's doing and, you know, maybe want to jump on it. So I wrote an interview, interviewed him Uh, at the time. I mean, he didn't speak the best English, so we just kind of like pieced it together. But the interview turned out really cool. It's probably still up on 321 Polo. I think I still pay for that web domain now. I think it's still (laughs) up there. But anyway, after that interview went live, like Marino just reached out to me and was like, hey, do you want to be on Team Marino? So at the time, that was just like, hey, I'll throw you a frame. Just thanks for the support. Like you can be Team Marino. And it just kind of established in a relationship where we were talking back and forth and just like keeping tabs on each other. And then eventually he was like, I want to produce frames in North America and just have it easier for people to get access to frames because like building one off and one off and one off takes a lot of time and it takes a long time for people to get them. I want people to more easily access a frame. So he basically trusted me after I had trusted him and he was like, (laughs) let's make a company. And that's where, I mean, it's mostly me, but he, you know, he, he, he reached out to me with the idea of like having the frame. So yeah, that is where Enforcer came about at the time, obviously like bike polo was a very different sport. So, you know, like bike polo was kind of crashing into people more. It was, <laughs> you know, 
obstruction wasn't there. I was watching a lot of hockey like most of us were, and we're just like excited. So I was like, yep, got to call it enforcer because it sounds like tough and like it's going <laughs> to do some cool things on the court. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is from the era where like, you wanted a heavy steel bike because anything else was just going to break because you were going to be crashing into people every single game for an entire turn for every game. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we like the very first like run of bikes I got was in 2012 or 2013. So, I mean, it's almost been 10 years or right at 10 years ago now. And bike polo back then was just a very different sport than it is now <laughs> yeah we have a bunch of the old school merinos like before enforcer kind of took was out there really as an option in ottawa bike polo. a lot of the old heads ride their old custom built merinos and i mean the geometries are all similar but it's definitely not as consistent or probably as fine-tuned as the enforcer geometry has become right everyone was kind of plugging in what they thought was best and there are some pretty wacky things that we see <laughs> in Ottawa with these old Merino frames that have come around. But uh, how did you actually design the frames? Like, do you have an engineering background or it, how did you actually go about doing that? Or was it Merino that took the lead on that? I'm not sure. Um, it was me. So he kind of trusted me, which I really appreciated. He was just like, I trust what you're doing and going for it. I don't have an engineering background. I, I mean, I didn't know a lot. It's been a lot of trial and error it started mm -hmm. out with um i based it around the joust because that's what people were riding people were loving the joust at the time i tweaked some things like i made the i don't know if you've seen a joust recently but like the chain stays on a joust are so long like yeah yeah <laughs> we have a player in ottawa coach who rides them he rides his fleet fellow proudly yeah the amount of room between that tire and like the seat tube is just like five inches and it's just like even at the time, I knew that was too much. So I like shortened <laughs> things up and changed some minor things. I don't remember what else I exactly changed a couple angles on things. And I mean, even at this time, we had a few people in our club in Columbia, Missouri that had custom Marinos. So, you know, I kind of played off what their geometry was. And then I just kind of winged it. And I was like, okay, here's a small, a medium and a large. <laughs> and the V1, the very first ones, they weren't the best um they I mean, gavin you're a proud owner of a v1 aren't i'm you? not sure i am i might have a v2 what did the v1s look like um so they were like the color coordinated so like i think it was just 26 so i only did 26 in the v1s mm -hmm. the small was had a yellow logo the medium had orange and then the large had uh, red logos okay and so i have a large with orange behind me here it's black and orange so that's like when the size change happened like the okay. the first run like i said like there was issues like the small was clearly a medium and like the medium <laughs> was clearly a large and the large was clearly like an extra large so okay. at the time like you know i just didn't know what i was doing and people bought the bikes i don't sure i have people are probably still riding some of those bikes but you know i, I mean, think they figured out the sizing <laughs> So did you just bump up all the sizes kind of in your own mind when you found that out? Cause, exactly, okay. exactly. So then then on the, the next run of them, I changed a little. I actually changed other little things too. Outside of just bumping things up, you know, I still saw that like, hey, I needed to make these change stays even shorter because, you know, slowly over time, like wheelies were getting more and more like Hell a yeah. thing, wheelie pivots. So I was like, got to make that shorter, got to make that shorter. 
and it's just lucky that I have Marino and I'm running small batches. I know like Dave and the Lightfoot convo talked about making, you know, having to do hundreds at a time. And I definitely am lucky that Marino lets me do smaller batches so I can sell through them, see what I need to change, change a few things. And then the next batch is better. It's actually really cool. Like, I mean, having talked to Dave and Sean, like, cause I remember the enforcer V1 coming out around the same time as the ad Astra, and like talking to Sean about just like how long that process was for him to get that bike through that stage of development. Like it's kind of, I think of it as, I feel like he went through the development process like a normal, like a big bike company would. Um, and I mean, if you know, the polo demographic, the, the polo market maybe isn't so large to, to be able to make that, uh, like, I mean, I think he kind of made it work, but it's kind of cool. It, I feel like you both, you ended up both making polo bikes but like you kind of went at it from like opposite approaches if that makes yeah, sense yeah i mean i got i got super lucky with marino and him trusting me i know he's been screwed over by other companies trusting them i don't know if you heard like the the drama with six bi- sick bikes in the uk but they no, kind of really fucked him over where he like was making all these bikes for them and they took all these pre-orders for bikes and then they just fucking stole all this money from customers and then marino had already made all these bikes at the time and he was like uh you owe me a lot of money for these frames that i just have sitting here yeah so yeah he's definitely been he's a really trusting guy and it has not worked out for him in the past but luckily he found someone good through me and me (laughs) and we've had a great partnership and you know the way it has always kind of worked out is i never had to put money up front for frames he would build me frames he would send me frames and then as i sell them i would send him the money for them so I mean, I never had a lot of money when I started playing bike polo. I was delivering pizza. And then when I started Enforcer, I had just moved to Portland. So I didn't have like a lot of money. Like all my money was just like moving to like a real city from a college town and Mm -hmm. moving across the country. And so being able to have him ship me frames, I paid like the importing and the shipping. But being able to just like pay him back as I was selling, like allowed this to happen. So a lot of props go to Marino and him trusting me and him still to this day, trusting me and, you know, allowing the system to work out for us. Has have you ever been to his workshop? Have you visited him in Peru? I have. I got lucky when we went to Worlds in um, Argentina. Is that where it was? Yeah. Argentina. Cordoba. Yeah. Yeah. So. My girlfriend and I, we flew into Lima. We flew into Peru. We stayed with Marino. Got to see, At the time, his shop was like out of his house. So <laughs> it's only just recently during COVID moved out of his actual house because his wife is really sick. Um, she has like complications from getting TB when she was younger. Oh, wow. So yeah. uh, she, he couldn't have like all these workers coming into the house with her. And like if the case of her getting COVID or something, that would have been tragic for her so he you know at the time bikes were still selling and he was doing pretty good and he's like he rented a shop um, outside of his house for the first time you know that's i was working with him for like 10 years before he moved out of his you know his house kind of doing things well what's his Uh, setup like is it just like i mean there's two setups now apparently because it was in his home and his shop but what did you see when you went there i'm just so curious 
Um, so yeah, he had in his garage, like a giant CNC machine. That's like a lathe. That's where he was making a lot of his dropouts. It was making, you know, I'm not sure if you see his Instagram, but he does some like custom engraving on head tubes for his custom bikes. He'll do that stuff. So, uh, he kind of had the giant CNC machine in his garage and then everything's kind of on the ground level and then on the roof. So houses in crew <laughs> are just way different than anything like around here. But yeah, yeah. So on the ground level was the garage with the cnc lathe and then there was also um two two benders and machines for cutting all the tubes that was all kind of on the ground level like various um, drill presses and things like that and then up on the roof was where the welding was done there was like two different stations for welders and then there was like a paint booth next to that and then also on the roof was like an oven for like heat treating the frames. Wow. So it's like, I wonder if they needed mean, the for... home at all, you know, you have a heat treating <laughs> oven above your house. Yeah. Well, heat so, rises, you know, oh, that's true. It's better than the basement. Yeah. For what he was doing, it was like, it's pretty amazing. I mean, he's grown a name in the bike community. Like he, there's like Facebook pages dedicated to Merino bikes and things like that. Yeah like outside of polo, just like the general bike community, just because of, you know, how affordable he can make his bikes and people giving into it. So, well, and they're great. Yeah. Like that's the, that's the crazy part about it is it's not, I feel like there's lots of weird affordable options. If you want to go down, you know, the rabbit hole, like yeah. I ordered, I ordered all that random carbon parts off of AliExpress and like tried that experiment. <laughs> like I'm, I'm, I'm one to roll the dice on these things, but, uh, you know, you're not really rolling the dice with Merino. Like it, it is just, I haven't seen anything but excellent, excellent bikes come out of, mm -hmm. come from him. Yeah. So. I mean, I he's, think he's learned a lot over the time. Like I know beforehand he was working in, um, so th there's a few different bike company or like, yeah, actual bike companies getting frames made in Peru, like in the Lima area. And before he started Merino, he worked at, um, I think it was Marin, like M-A-R-I-N. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I might be mixing. I, it might be someone else, but in my head right now, it's it's Marin. That's where he worked. So he was like building frames there, and then he kind of broke off on his own. And definitely over the years, things have gotten better, and he's learned more and more, and he's been able to afford better tooling and like to make things more precise. But with the setup he has now, and like everything he has going on now, like there's no reason his bikes are as cheap as they are outside of the exchange rate, you know, like that is good, you know, like $600 for a custom bike or $500, whatever he charges is great money in Peru, like with the exchange rate, but with his talent and his machining and his workshop, he should be charging, you know, like 14, 1500, yeah. just like whatever a vanilla bikes is in Portland. Like yeah. there is no difference outside of he's one, just a genuinely great person. And he's, you know, has the ability to work with the exchange rate and give people affordable custom bikes. Yeah. I've seen some Marinos do really well in like the hardtail free ride kind of downhill mountain bike scene. Like a lot of the hardtail like fanatics yeah. are into the Merino custom frames, the steel frames and stuff like that. So, I mean, yeah, you're right. And even BMX, I've seen some stuff, I've seen frames. It's weird when you're just like on Instagram, looking at other bike stuff. And like a Merino frame pops up and you're just, whoa, <laughs> I've seen that before. I'm riding one of those, you know? Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's essentially the same thing. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I'm just curious because I honestly don't even know. And I feel like 
people are curious how many renditions of the pole, like the 26 inch polo bike were there? Like how many different varieties are there actually? Cause I think people have like the black one, the BD <laughs> and then, you know, the one three, but like, there's gotta be yeah. more than that. Can, um, can you run us through like the entire enforcer catalog and <laughs> <laughs> different generations? Yeah. Past and present. <laughs> I will try my best. So like one thing that's like, I mean, maybe this isn't good to have recorded, but I'm not like a great like business person. Like the way Sean comes into this is 100% different than how I'm coming into this. Like I never came into this. Like I want to make money out of selling these bikes. It was, I want to get people on affordable bike polo bikes. And because of that, I'd never had kept like great records. Like if you asked me like, Mm -hmm. how many bikes have you sold? Like, I would have to do a lot of digging to like look up like all my importing records of like, you know, all the frames I've ever imported from Peru, just to, like look at that document to try to figure it out. Because just like, I, I don't keep track of it because I don't care. I mean, like I'm not losing a ton of money, like at best, I'm probably breaking even with everything I'm doing. And that's like, I'm just fine with that. So yeah, I'm not the greatest businessman. But with that said, I think I started with the the ones I mentioned earlier. It was a small, medium, and large, 26. Those were the ones that were just kind of like yellow. I kept them warm colors. So it was the yellow, uh, orange, and black that ended up actually being medium, large, and extra large. But at the time, they were sold as small, medium, and large. And those have like the the skull logo? Yeah, so those had the skull logo. Uh, That was something that was kind of last minute. I think I was like... I didn't have a graphic design background. I'm really terrible at graphics design. Like I still can't do it outside of using Canva, which was like a dream. Uh, <laughs> We're but, very pro Canva on this. Podcast. Yeah, exactly. Not Canva pro though. We don't pay for anything. Oh uh, no, definitely free Canva. But <laughs> yeah, at the time I was just like, I don't know. I think I was legitimately at a tournament and Marino, you know, talking to Marino on like Facebook chat and he was like hey these frames really need to be painted like we're ready to go we're ready to ship them like what do you want to do and i was like oh i don't know i don't know i hadn't thought this far in advance and i was just like <laughs> i don't know just like a skull or something you know and so we <laughs> skull threw the skull logo on there because that's just like simple and i think everyone does some crossed mallets on their like club logos yep. and stuff so at the yep. time it was just like whatever it's fine and that stuck around for that i would call that the v1 those three frames V2, I fixed the issue. I had a proper small, medium, large, and I dropped the extra large just because those frames never sold or they just took forever to sell. Um, Also in the V2 is when I introduced the 700s. So V2 had a small, medium, a large of the 700s. Those ones... Were, were cool colors so i just kind of kept them like in the color family to help me like mm-hmm. differentiate between the two and then v3 is when i started to get more serious about it and i was like hey this is actually taking off people are buying these um for the first two generations of frames i sold them mostly word of mouth I, I feel like I didn't have a proper website. Like people weren't like logging on like they are now just to order from me. It was kind of like, Hey, do you have the size? Okay. Here's some money to go buy the frame kind of thing. So <laughs> it was very DIY. This kind of goes back to the DIY culture. You know, that's where I was, you know, but then I realized like, Hey, this is catching on. People are buying these frames and I should get more serious about this. 
Um, that's when I used my friend Alyssa to help me out. She helped me design the logo. Uh, she drew it up for me. She created the font for the frames. She was the, she gave me the first rendition of the website. Like most of the website layout is her as well. Uh, she really hooked me up. She has the graphics design background. So, you know, she actually could do all this stuff that I just felt like overwhelmed and felt like I couldn't do. Mm -hmm. So definitely shout out to Alyssa for helping me out with that. And that's kind of, that's where V3 came. And that's what's, I haven't changed the geo since V3. Everything's been the same for 26 and 700. I felt like I kind of locked in on what I wanted to do for so those. So is that the BD now? Yeah. So that's when I also introduced the naming of the frames too, because at that time I was like, if I'm going to properly brand it as an enforcer, like I need room for growth in the future. <laughs> I need room to like expand so that's when I had the BD um, branding. Shout out Brian Dillman, who the frame is named after, one of the greatest bike polo players, great guy in general. That was going to uh, be my next question. What does BD stand for? Yeah, so all <laughs> all the frames are kind of like named after something. Um, but I guess I'm jumping ahead of myself there if we're going through the chronological of the Enforcer frames. Sometime like how many years ago? Maybe like six years ago now. There was this like big debate on the internet of like six twenty six seven hundred, and then people were like, "No, the future is six fifty B." And I was like, <laughs> "Well, I can test out a six fifty B. Like, why not? Like, I'll just make one." So that's when I introduced the six fifty B version. Um, and I don't know if this is a surprise to you all. It was a surprise to me at the time, I guess, sort of. But the, the amount of talk on the internet does not equal like what people actually <laughs> buy. So <laughs> those frames like sat for a long time. Everyone's like, no, it's the future. Everyone's going to want 20 or 650. And I was like, all right, I'll make like five of each size and we'll see what happens. And then they sat. So, well, I, I know one yeah. of them is in Toronto. Gabe, Gabe is on the 650 and I think he loves it. Like it's pretty, it is an awesome bike. Um, I know I probably would have gone 650 just so that I didn't have to go 26, but then I had nice 26 wheels and like, <laughs> I don't know. I feel like it's, it's one thing to, to talk on the internet and hypothetically say what you would, you would want in a vacuum. And it's something else when it's like, okay, what am I actually going to ride this year? Yeah. I, I mean, it also takes yeah. time too, from like when the talk starts and I put something out, like they've trickled out. Like I sold those, you know, frames and I've made like a second, second batch or third batch, you know, of them and they've slowly trickled out, but it's just one of those things where it's just like, Everyone's like, if there's a 650B on the market, I'd buy it right now. And then I'm like, well, here's some. And then they're like, oh, well, not not right now, now. Yeah. Same thing happened with like through axle forks. Like everyone was like, if there was a through axle fork out there, I would buy it right now. And I'm like, all right, well, I just did like a handful of through axle forks. So if anybody wants to test them out, they're like, well, I mean, I don't actually want to try it out, but I, I got mean, one. Yeah. but it had to be custom made. It wasn't one of the one in the first batch. So yeah. And then, I mean, since then, like now, like you've reached out to me, other people have reached out to me. And it's just one of those things where like I was putting things out and people like the talk didn't meet up with it yet. Like it slowly trickled out. If You're I had the, the curve. Yeah. yeah if I had it on there, if I had them out right now, I think I would selling more 650s. I'd probably be selling more through axle forks. But I, I wonder yeah. if bike polo is just like a little bit behind where mountain biking is at. Like, I feel like it was a couple years like when mountain biking started to really go through axle, like as the norm, I think that's when a lot of polo players were like, oh, this is clearly the future. Like, look at all these mountain bikes and look all these mountain bike companies that are 
are jumping ship and they're like, Polo should probably do the same. And like, it does make sense, right? We want stiff, strong front axles. Like I, I rationally understand why through axle is, is popular and becoming a norm. Okay. But I'm not going to replace my bike. The same with mountain biking, where I think it took like five years or so from when people recognized this was a good, good design change to like actually, okay, now I'm ready for a new bike Yeah, uh, before it actually like became, uh, the standard everywhere. And I feel like Polo is just even more delayed and behind the mountain biking scene. I think part of that though, is has to do with like who bike polo players are. Like, I think, I mean, overwhelmingly, I think bike polo players are working class people and affording these amazing new components just for most people isn't practical. So waiting a few years and like more of these as more bike pole as more mountain bike companies make parts, things slowly get cheaper and cheaper. Then it gets mm-hmm. down to a place where like us average folks can afford an awesome through hacksle hub and things like that. Yeah. Well, you only need the front hub and the front hubs are cheaper than the rear hubs in most cases. But yeah, I really like my through axle fork. I think it's awesome to like, I can't say enough about it. Take my wheel off, put it back on and my brakes not rubbing, you know, and (laughs) that's just a great peace of mind, but it also feels solid. Um, Okay. So we got up to the BD here. Yes. And then I guess the one three was next. Am I right in that assumption? The the 650, what are the 650s called? They're also BDs. All bike polo, steel bike polo frames are BD frames. Even before aluminum, though. uh, So when I went to meet, or I guess when I went to Worlds in Cordoba, and I met Marino, and I just got really excited, like, meeting him, and just, (laughs) like, I was like, man, could I, like, turn Enforcer bikes into something more? or, Or could I offer more bikes to people than just polo bikes? Like... I have the ability to offer people any kind of bike I want. So when I came back from Peru, I was super excited. And that's when I started making other bikes as well. So I made the, or I designed and had Marino make, um, what did I do? I did the KT, which is named after the Katy Trail in Missouri. Um, So that's like a hardtail, like mountain bike, like kind of, karate monkey ish and then i also made the sw which is named after the Springwater corridor in portland which is just another bike trail um so that's more of a gravel bike kind of a drop bar gravel big tire gravel bike i made the jp which is stands for just party in which is kind of a it's the <laughs> it's the bike that had the cargo fork on it and that was the just party and it was kind of like a shout out to St. Louis bike polo and you know how much they love partying. And uh, I just nice. saw like the cargo fork is like, think of all the things you could haul to your party, whether it be speaker, <laughs> beer, whatever, cooler, whatever you want. Um, and then I made the MA, which was a hardtail mountain bike and the MA stands for, Marino Aguila, which I was just wanted to, you know, name something after him before all the help that he had done for me and, you know, helping create the company. Uh, so, yeah, that was kind of the next step was like, what else can I do? And I just said, I'm going head first into this and I'm just creating all of these different kind of bikes and seeing what happens with them. And 
I'm not great at advertising. And I was just kind of hoping like, hey, I'm going to offer affordable bikes of other kinds to the polo community and just kind of see what happens. And over time, they've kind of slowly trickled out. And I don't know if I would necessarily jump in and sell other kinds of bikes in the future. I haven't really decided yet. Everything's been kind of on hold because of COVID and me moving away for school. But I definitely appreciated the the chance to kind of do that and, you know, be able to offer people other kinds of frames that are affordable, especially at the time, you know, frame bikes were getting more expensive and I was offering frames at like what someone could order them on QBP or something like that, or even cheaper. So I tried to do that. Yeah. I gotta say it's been really frustrating. Like as someone that tried to not go, like tried to stay 700 and always encourage other people to stay 700 and like, you know, as a fixed craft stand that like just loved my ad Astro so much, like it was really frustrating that you kept making these enforcers widely available that were so good and so cheap. Like mm-hmm. anytime Gavin and I would be having these hypothetical arguments about like what kind of polo bike someone could build. It's like, okay, new player. They want to get us like they've played for a year. They want to get serious. They want to throw like 500 to $600 at like a really good polo setup. And it's like, how do you do anything other than an enforcer in North America? Like, cause you, you, you look at what you can't, points. You, yeah. you just can't. And like for what, for what you just as far as the quality goes, it's like, okay, well you could spend $2,000 on a custom frame and it might not even be as good as this. Yeah. To to be completely honest. I mean, like I kind of, like I said earlier, I put a lot of, I've gone through a lot of variations, a lot of minor changes and I felt like I have the 26 dialed in. Like that's kind of, you know what I've been doing. I haven't done a run of 700s in a long time. I haven't done 650s in a long time, but Mm -hmm. I keep doing 26s because you can't get that anywhere else. You can't get a 650 or I mean, you can't get a 26 inch polo bike anywhere else. And I just want to make sure that's available. Like, I mean, I'm Mm -hmm. playing less right now because of grad school and because of COVID, but I always made sure that I was like working with Marino to get frames out there and making sure I had them available. And thank you so much for that. I'm curious about those other bikes. Okay. The other kind of mountain gravelly bikes, the cargo bike. Which one of them do you think was like the biggest hit of that line? Um, I would say I had the most success with not the frame, but the cargo fork that went on. Oh, yeah. Because so. <laughs> it was just so, like, you know, it was very similar to the Clyde's or the Crust Bike Clydesdale fork. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And at the time, Crust Bike was kind of sold out of them. And I was, you know, as I do offering at a lower price point because I wasn't trying to make money. I was just trying to get Marino his money and going in with that mindset. I'm, you know, I sold through the, I don't, I have several of the JP frames laying around because I, it's hard to just sell that frame, but I've sold, like I just went through and sold all the forks because people were so excited about the fork. Yeah. Um, yeah. but as a complete bike, I think the KT one I had, that was kind of like the karate monkey bike. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. It was just a really cool frame and, just having complete hardtail bike it's i don't know it was really dope and that one sold out probably the quickest i think it's a bit of a do everything bike so a lot of utility if you're someone in an apartment they can't own a bunch of bikes but you want a bike packing bike they can do some single track and like it's a nice mix of things i really enjoyed that one um i have a Clydesdale fork myself and i love it so i mean getting some cheaper versions of that kind of thing i mean crust can never keep them in stock so Mm -hmm. i thought that was awesome you came out with that too yeah, it's honestly, it's dangerous. Like, 
I'm trying to get less bikes. You can, I mean, <laughs> you guys can see Good I'm luck. on webcam. I've got like the walls of the room just covered in bikes right now. But uh, I'm all the bikes I have, I have to keep in like this one, my office basically. Like I have one room for my stuff and like I, the bikes take up as much square footage as I, they possibly can. But every time I go to the Enforcer website, I'm like, I do want to get a cargo. Like I do want a cargo <laughs> fork and I do like, mm-hmm. I would like a KT and I would like, you know, it's like, uh, it's, I got to get off this website. <laughs> <laughs> so the one bike that you came up with that I think has been like hugely successful, I'm seeing them everywhere is the one three, which came yes. after the BD. So a couple questions about the one three, like first, yeah. what's the one three mean? Uh, so the one three is the atomic number for aluminum. So that was just, Oh, okay. like the third. I should have figured you know, that out. Yeah. <laughs> And I just, I call it the one three just because it matches, you know, BD, KT. I just like the, you know, the sound of it all. So it all kind oh, of one three sounds way better than 13. Exactly. I think so too. So yeah, everyone, no one really gets the 13. No one gets like any of the references of the bike names, but I mean, it, <laughs> as long as I get them and I'm having fun naming things, I, that's what I enjoy about it. Nice. So where does the one three come from and what's the story behind that bike? So, yeah, I think that came, I would say, so we're looking like kind of everything kind of mushes together, but let's say like all around the time of the last world's championship and maybe a little before that. And I kind of blame everything on Chris Hammersley because that guy just like (laughs) he made everyone think that you had to ride an aluminum frame because he was riding the crew bike or he was riding the T1s forever. And then everyone was riding the crew bikes and everyone was just like, Everyone loves going for what Chris Hammersley is doing. Yeah. Shout out um, to Chris Hammersley. Yeah. I wonder how much of just all of bike polo history is people trying to look like him. That's yeah. 90% of players. I'm pretty sure. The only <laughs> reason why anyone rides 700s, if you ask me. Ah, uh, totally. Just not, just not true. But <laughs> totally. I, I don't disagree with that, but um, so yeah, everyone was kind of switching to this style. Also it's affordable. Like, just to be honest, going back to the point I was making earlier, like if you can go on eBay and buy a crew track frame for like 150 bucks, like that is an affordable way to get into bike polo. And it's just not something I could do with a steel frame, you know, working with Merino and I'm a diehard 26. So like I knew that I wanted to see an aluminum 26 inch frame out there. Like that's just something you can't get going into eBay because no one made anything like that. Like everyone, mm-hmm. everyone's just writing, you know, track frames, which is totally fine. It's working out for people, but there's not 26 inch track frames that would work perfect for bike polo geometry. So I was like, I already have a perfect design for a frame. Like the BD is working great. The 26 inch BD is great. The geometry is great. How can I help this community, you know, figure this out? So I just went on Alibaba, looked <laughs> at people who were making aluminum frames, and I just messaged a few different people. A lot of the minimums on there are 100, and I was like, is there any way you're willing to do custom frames less than 100? I can't afford 100. And eventually one person got back to me, and they're like, that's totally fine. We'll do 60 of them. Or like, can you do 60? And I was like, sure, let's make it work. Like, let's just see what happens. Um, it was a big gamble. Uh, I had someone donate me the money to put down because I didn't have the money to do it. 
this isn't like Marino where I'm paying after they sell. Like, mm-hmm. this is like, you need money up front yeah. kind of deal. Yeah. How many times have you guys gone out and just purchased 60 bikes online? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that seems like a pretty big down payment. So yeah, it was a lot of trust and a lot of just like crossing my fingers. Like, please let this work. I don't want to get ripped off. Like, this is a lot of money. Yeah. And it they sent me the prototypes. Well, before it, I was just like watching them build all these frames. They would send me updates. Like they'd send me like the drawings based off my drawings and everything like looked really professional. And um, they sent me like the pictures of the completed frames. And I was like, wow, these look really good too. And then eventually they kind of, I, I got the prototypes. I got a prototype of a extra small, small, medium, large, like one of each size. And looking at them like in my hand, I was like, I think I might not get ripped off here. I think this might've worked out. Like just luckily I found the right company or, you know, whatever, but yeah, I just, it was a huge gamble and it worked out. So they <laughs> I, got first, I think, yeah. I think we're all extremely grateful. <laughs> yeah. The first batch was, I got 60 frames and they sold out pretty quickly. And, you know, so I started this project in like December of 2019. And then obviously a few months later, everything shut down because of COVID. So that like first round of bike frames took a long time to get here because, you know, all the factories were shut down and things waiting for things to start back up. And people weren't really playing at the time anyway. So I don't know if it really mattered, but still having this money kind of in limbo and just kind of like this overall anxiety of, uh, am I, kind of just wasting all this money and just trying to figure out what would happen. But when I did get them in and I got, I actually didn't get to look over the frames, like the whole bulk order 60 frames when I got them in because they didn't actually arrive in Portland until I had already left for Texas. So um, I haven't, I never got to actually see the 60 frames that I ordered until, you know, like people, I started going to tournaments again and I'd see someone else's frame like writing them. Like I just have one of the prototypes and I've seen the prototype around, you know, but I hadn't seen the actual frames. So I have to ask like North sides must be one of the largest, like certainly the largest per capita, like destination for these frames. Like I swear half the, half the bikes, more than half the bikes at our tournaments are enforcer one threes now. No, not that many. We only got six originally, I believe. (laughs) Okay. That's like half the, that's half the, that's half the players in our region. now. No, it's not. No, I'm just kidding. But there's a lot of steel enforcers too, bringing up the rear. But yeah, I remember I got the four and then Seichi got one in Montreal. So there was five, I think at the start. And now there's well, more coming. I'm sure there were, all I know is we came out of the pandemic and the first tournament we played, both of my teammates were on a purple one, three. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's and, true. And, and we played some of those games against other teams that were on purple one, three. There were only seven teams in that tournament. And I think there were at least four. I think, yeah, one four threes. of them showed up at that tournament. Four, yeah, that's, that's a pretty definitely like more than double the next bike. They're awesome. I see, but I see them. I don't know. I feel like, I see them everywhere now, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I have quite a few, like Montreal, Calgary. I don't know, something about that area. I've had a lot, like, I don't know a lot of people in that area, to be honest. Like, a lot of, like I said, like, a lot of it started out as word of mouth and me, like, knowing people, and I just met a lot of people in the community, but I haven't been up to that area. But it's felt great, like, seeing how much support 
has come from people up there in Canada on kind of all well, I've been to Vancouver, but outside of that, like all these other, other clubs and people I haven't met. And I don't know, I've got a, definitely a lot of Canadian support, which I've really appreciated. Yeah. Well, we love your bikes. I mean, that's the thing when we go, to, <laughs> I'm not kidding you. Well, it's going to start to slow down because so many people have them now. We're kind of, <laughs> we got to recruit more players to buy more enforcers from you. Yeah. Because <laughs> they don't break. That's yeah. something we've noticed. So we can ride and, them for years and years and years. And shout out Mo for having, I think, the the prettiest enforcer with the uh the like sunset fade and the split one, yeah. The split like I I was like, Well, what did you do to get him to paint it like that? And he's like, No, I I, I did that. <laughs> like it does it doesn't come like that. I mean, I think a lot of people are confused. I mean, I don't I don't talk a lot about like the backstory behind things. So they see like the custom BD paint jobs come out and they're like, oh, can I get a custom one three paint job? And I'm like, I just ordered a hundred frames from China. If I was trying to do custom <laughs> paint, this would take so much of my money. I'm sorry, I can't do that for you. But yeah. I think at the price point, you know, 350, I don't know, I can't remember what it is to Canada, maybe 400 shipped. Like that's you can afford like a custom paint job for like 150 bucks and still have like a great price on a frame. Yeah. I was going to say you can still custom paint your, your enforcer one three. It's just the same as custom painting anything else. You, you pay for the paint job. Exactly. Especially when the bike is, I mean, kind of the cutting edge of what's being played on in the game. I mean, where else are you going to get, where else is the cutting edge of the, the sport? Also the cheapest frame you can get. That doesn't make any sense. You know what I mean? Usually those are the most expensive or they're more expensive just because there are cheaper options. So they price it up instead of pricing mm-hmm. it down like Enforcer has. Yeah. I mean, I've never been one again, going back to the DIY punk ethics. Like I, I'm not trying to necessarily make a living out of this and I'm happy breaking even. And that allows me to keep prices cheaper. And as long as, I'm able to get people on bikes and they're excited about bike polo and the bikes are working out and then I'm glad to keep doing it. I mean, I haven't had a major hit yet. Like fingers crossed, like this hundred frames that come in, like they're not all destroyed and I just lose all my money or something or they're all crap or, you know, but like, so fingers crossed this next run of a hundred works out well, but yeah, it's been working out so far and mm-hmm. I, I don't know, karma why kind of thing or something. But why purple? <laughs> why purple? That's a lot more, I guess, kind of personal thing. I'm sh- I'm glad to share, but I just want to say it's not like I have some like, I don't know. I'll, yeah, so like growing up, like my favorite color was purple. And then my mom's favorite color was purple. So it's kind of like a connection with my mom. And then my mom's best friend, Diane, her favorite color was purple. And <laughs> then like, how many years ago was it now? Like six years ago, my mom's friend, Diane, passed away. And so it's just kind of like the color purple has always just been kind of a connection to her and to my mom. And I kind of feed it into lots of things I do just kind of like in honor of Diane passing away. That's amazing. That's yeah, so cool. that's awesome. I noticed on the new batch of the one threes, the pictures you took, there is a small difference on the second batch, like that yeah. little reinforcement on the head tube. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what, what went into that? Why make that change? Or is that the only change too? Uh, so that is the only change, and that is because I'm blaming it on airline handling, but Joe Ristom broke his 1-3 right there, like right where the top tube mm. meets the head tube. And yeah, I don't know what happened, but I was just like, I'd rather just try it, you know, fix it ahead of time before, mm-hmm. you know, it happens again. 
Yeah. I've had, yeah. and then just in smack in the middle or right before, I think someone else's frame broke. So of the 64 out there in the world, I've had two breaks so far. Well, c- can I just say that's an absolutely incredible record for, because yeah. I remember when they came out, you were heavily stressing, like this is a prototype aluminum frame. Like I, cause I, I remember sort of the, the marketing material was like, you know, where you're pretty sure it's going to be good. But you also like, you know, recognize you're getting an aluminum frame for bike polo. And like even the even the 700 players like kind of expect to go through them every couple of years, you know? Yeah, I mean, that was kind of the thing, too. Like while I'm offering a brand new frame, it's like it's coming from a factory that I've never been to. It's coming from people like I talk to like very irregularly through email that I don't know. And like I have no idea what's happening in China when that frame's being built or anything like that. And I was just like. I don't know if this is going to hold up. I'm crossing my fingers. These frames aren't failures. And so far they've worked out. And I mean, I've been, I've been abusing mine and it hasn't fallen apart yet. That's why I'm, I'm blaming airlines. You gotta, you gotta be Mm -hmm. extra careful when you're packing your aluminum frames compared to your steel frames. You can just throw them in your bag and whatever with them. But those airlines start stacking stuff on your bike and you don't know what's going to happen. One thing that you released on Instagram today that I don't know if everyone caught, but people were excited about it. I saw it in some of the kind of Canada bike polo discord channels. Enforcer X Donata, the collab. Tell us yeah. a bit about this. What's going on? You teased it, but we need to know. <laughs> um, so we're definitely in the very like beginning stages. I mean, I've been great friends with Chris for a number of years now. Same with Emma. And obviously, as we said earlier, Chris loves his aluminum track frames. And he was like, hey, can we make an aluminum frame 700 uh it's, it's getting harder to find these good tired frames. of buying tracks <laughs> yeah i mean it's, it's harder to find these t1s out there nowadays like bike polo is just running through them and i was like i'm totally down for it but i'm not down to just toss 10 grand plus you know however much it would be 10 12 grand into just us guessing on these prototypes like we need to go through marina we need to test things out we need to figure out if people one are going to be interested in buying them because as i was saying earlier like i've had a hard time selling 700s because people buy the cheaper track frames but you online. never had chris riding one that's true yeah i've been it's... dreaming of the day i can get chris on an enforcer <laughs> but yeah so it's kind of in the prototyping stage and i'm kind of giving all creative leeway on geometry over to chris and i'm kind of you know kind of helping coach through it just being like hey this is what we can do what we can't do but i think he he loves a t1 and he's kind of tweaking around what a t1 was doing and what he would prefer it to look like and his frame as of you know recording this episode is should be shipping out soon to him so he can test out and then from there, you know, we'd do a test run of maybe a small, medium, and large kind of situation and just, you know, find out what geometry works. So maybe in a year, year and a half, two years from now, we'll be seeing maybe some aluminum Donata enforcer Ooh. frame sets going out there. But I, I just want to do it right and I want to make sure we get the geometry down, use the resources we have with Merino to get everything squared away, make sure there's a market for it. Just like I said, though, I, I mean, it's a huge gamble buying these frames from China. So I just, I don't have a lot of money. I'm sure he doesn't either, especially to just like waste 10 grand, 12, 15, whatever it's going to end up being for some frames. Yeah. 
So you're going to do a steel prototype from Merino to check yes. the geo, a small yes. run to test the market and then yes. go to China if everything goes perfectly. Yeah. Yeah. That's the, that's our short-term goal right now. And it all starts with Chris getting this first frame, see how he likes it. And then us going from there. He just has to win like a tournament, <laughs> something where there's a camera that can watch it Yeah, and then just watch them. Everyone will have their hands up. Please, please. It's getting harder to find aluminum track frames on eBay, I think, with like oh, yeah. COVID coming in and everyone buying up frames, um, like not just in bike polo, but in general, like the, the cycling market is kind of going through a dry spell. So I think that there could be a market for it in the future. I hope there is. And again, I just want to help Chris and other people who love the T1 get to continue to ride that frame if that's what they're loving. And if you can't find them on eBay and you know, you're just looking through Craigslist and you can't find anything anymore, then let me see if I can help out and get people on an affordable 700 T we'll call it like T2 or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> Terminator two. Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah. I'm, I, I'm just like, I know for myself, I like, I got the, I, I I'm writing the BD now too. And I know for myself, like I kind of went into this, like when we started the podcast, I was like 700 for life, baby. Um, and just for the record, I'm like, I'm riding the 26 for science. You know, I, I haven't, <laughs> I haven't, I'm not, I'm not a convert yet, though. It feels really good. <laughs> I will like, you know, anecdotally, it feels really good. But um, I have, I kind of committed to going down getting to like i wanted to get like go down the custom 700 route as well and it sounds like you're gonna well not ruin that but you know if you guys can offer like my whole idea behind going down the custom 700 route was like look at a seven look at the t1 start there maybe tweak it a bit but if that's what hammersley's doing like i would trust your judgment and marino and that way more than me trying to figure that out well, with there's one uh, sold right local there builder. yeah yeah already sold. perfect yeah Absolutely. And I have all the components from my Ad Astra that I could just throw throw on it with the wheels and everything. So yeah, I mean, I'm ready I, to go once the frame gets here. <laughs> as someone who's sold frames, like I've been on everything. I've ridden everything. I've I started on 26, that first like custom merino I bought that I mentioned earlier, like back in the day. Um, everyone was riding like giant like two inch hookworm tires and <laughs> had like <laughs> BMX stems with like small BMX risers on yeah. it. And then from there I went to, uh, um, I think a 700. Cause at the time I was running through to polo and I traded Milwaukee bicycle company, some ad space on the website for a bruiser polo bruiser frame. So I was rocking 700 for a while. Um, and then I, started doing enforcer and then i went back to 26 because i had to ride my own frame and then i introduced no i went back to 700 sorry just because i had the components already built up <laughs> and then i missed 26 so i went back to 26 and then i introduced the 650b everyone was talking about and i had to test it out before i could you know put them on market so then i was riding 650 for a while but i don't know i ended up back at 26 and i love 26 and i don't think i'll ever change to anything else i think it's the perfect size i, I guess you're probably the person that has literally tried it all uh yeah. more so than than most have you ever tried 24 
<laughs> I have not tried 24. <laughs> the real question, and I think this is the, if we're talking about like popular trends in polo, when can we expect the Enforcer mini bike? <laughs> <laughs> I had someone ask me about that like the other day. Totally buy that. Yeah. Like that. <laughs> if there was the market there, I would bring it up. <laughs> I'm sure you could get a custom for Marino, Alex, if you wanted to, the 20 inch. Anyway, we're getting into crazy territory here. Um, <laughs> something else, Aaron, that you're really well known for is being a member of a very famous bike pool team, uh, More Sugar. The, the Prospectors? Well, that too. But more, oh. um, <laughs> what's the word? More recently, uh, yes. More Sugar, which has done really well at a bunch of tournaments. Commonwealth Classic being a really notable um, win for More Sugar recently. And I mean, Pete and Diego have put up some pretty amazing results kind of individually over the past mm-hmm. couple of years. And I mean, you've been in grad school. So I think a lot of the bike pole fanatics out there would be wondering, you know, what's next for more sugar? It's a three man squad, but obviously NA's is going to be a squad tournament. We know that. Are, do you have prospects lined up for your fourth and fifth? What's going on with more sugar? Where are you guys at? Um, I will say that more sugar started out as a squad team at, in before going down to Cordoba, we played NAs and qualifier with us three plus Jenny Spencer in a president. And then my, my buddy Gavin, who's one of my favorite people, he lives in Minneapolis now. So he kind of, I was going to say Gavin also, also a slayer. I always had to clarify when I was in California, I'm like, yeah, I play with Gavin, whatever, not that Gavin, like, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so we kind of started off as squad, and then, you know, when we went to Worlds and it was 3v3, there was kind of like those awkward moments of like, who's going to go down there? But it ended up being, you know, only the three of us could afford it. And I don't know. We're definitely sticking together, us three. Uh, We haven't had a lot of conversation about it yet, just because I feel like it's so new. And I literally, like, again as of recording this episode just finished up the semester today like this was my last day doing (laughs) anything so i feel like i have more like free brain power to you know think about (laughs) bike polo um but we'll be back us three will definitely be i find it hard to believe that pete hasn't talked about this or thought (laughs) about it or brought it up (laughs) i mean we we've dabbled in it i actually started the conversation in because of seeing, you know, the questions that you kind of laid out for me, but nothing's been decided yet. It's more of just like putting out some feelers out there and putting out some, uh, manifesting some players we'd love to play with, trying to get them on our team. But us three, me, Diego and Pete will definitely be together. Like I love playing with those two. I love the dynamic we have, the, the communication we have. You brought up the Commonwealth Classic. I mean, that was the first tournament I played in like two years or what, three years, whatever absence we had from bike polo. And (laughs) yeah, and we just popped out there and like it was like nothing. Like it was like us three had been playing together for the three years or two years that we hadn't, you know, had any tournaments. And it was just like it was perfect. So us three will still be together and. We're, we're still working out the other two, but and you, and you got you got Diego into Portland now too, so he's like living yeah, at that Pete's training. house or something like that. He's like exactly, on his property. Yeah. yeah, I mean Pete does a lot of great things, and one great thing he did was I'm not sure if he talked about it on your episode or if I'm supposed to be talking about it, but whatever. But he like you know he bought some property next door to his house, and you know invites people to live there. And Diego's one. Um, this 
other polo player from Portland, Brian, he's living there too. Like they have, like Brian has a trailer. Diego has his van that he built out. And I don't know. It's just a great thing that Pete did for, you know, helping bring people to polo and have he's them. He's trying to bring all the talent to one city. Yeah. So we can practice. We see, we see what's going on. <laughs> are you, are you not a little bit concerned that Pete and Diego went ahead and started a podcast with someone else? Uh, like I was, sh- I was shocked that, they had Hammersley and not you on that. I think originally it was going to be Pete, Chris, and me, but I've literally have so many plates spinning with my podcast, <laughs> running enforcer, doing grad school, teaching classes. I work another job like, you know, to help pay bills because grad school doesn't pay for itself. And <laughs> I'm just spinning so many plates. So when, Pete and Chris like approached me. I was like, man, I would love to do this, but I literally have no free time. Like (laughs) I'm completely drained of everything and I support all of you, but I, I just can't. So I'm glad they picked up Diego. I think I, I honestly haven't had a chance to listen to it yet because again, all my life has been in these finals, uh, the past couple of weeks, but I'm excited to have some free time and sit down and see what they're doing with it. So, yeah. I mean, just taking into account, like since 2019, obviously the shutdowns and lockdowns and everything, more sugar as a team just has the most momentum behind it of any NA squad with the results. It seems like every American tournament is won by Pete or Diego. I mean, Pete just won no fun city. Um, the notable exception being smack, obviously. Yeah. I was going to say, I think the person that has the most momentum right now is birdie coming off oh, smack well, yeah. and no fun, but, uh, also, Portland player Birdie, as yeah, of exactly. recently I too. Know. So there's a lot of I weird sp- things going on with Birdie all, moving all, to Portland. All, road, all roads lead to Portland. Hammersley joining that Lake podcast, City. and also the yeah. Enforcer Donata Cross. There's a lot of weird things going on. I don't know. Maybe we're reading more into things than it should be, Alex. <laughs> I feel but- like that. It's it's always Sunny meme where I'm just like, it's all coming together. <laughs> like you got the red. We were hoping to break something special here today, but I guess not. I mean, if I could work with birdie and chris like that would be amazing i don't think um that's an all that, of that that's like a happen. fantasy team right there. yeah that's that's like super fantasy team leave some talent for the rest of us jeez chris is diehard seattle uh unfortunately i've tried to get him when chris first moved to the pacific northwest emma had a job uh in portland so they were staying in my house in portland with me for a few months and i was trying so hard to get them to just stay in portland <laughs> and not move to seattle I think Did you that, get better by proxy having them just like around? I feel probably. like I feel like Hammersley's talent with like Oz, like through like osmosis oh would just like you get a little bit better this at like handling much. or something. <laughs> <laughs> I felt I would say I would have a completely different play style than Chris Hammersley, and I don't try to be a Chris Hammersley. Like I feel like I'm completely comfortable in my play style, but there's definitely things to learn from Chris. Totally. How, how would, how would you define your play style? Cause I feel like I haven't, he's on that more sugar style. You know what it is. <laughs> oh, the, the double goalie. <laughs> no, no, no. It's just like, they don't do a ton of fancy bike maneuvers. They just do really good stretch passes, play with pace and just play very conservative defense and, you know, hit shots when they're supposed to. Yeah. I mean, it's a lot of, it's just, we, we really care about the basics, like the fundamentals, like, you guys have talked about this many times on your podcast, but you know, like new players go out there and they're learning how to scoop and do wheelies and do all this <laughs> other stuff. And when I started playing, like scooping the ball wasn't a thing and doing wheelies was like impossible on the bikes we were riding and everyone was just passing and learning how to do that stuff. And 
I think people don't pass as well because they <laughs> don't, you know, they don't have the abilities. And a lot of it too is like, I got lucky again, coming up with four other players at my same level. Like we're all kind of learning at the same time. So um, it was like a push to get better at like the smaller things. And totally. I think a lot of players, unfortunately, maybe don't have that same thing. Like you're, you're a newbie in a club and you see these people doing amazing things and you're just trying to do those amazing things. Mm -hmm. But I'm all for the basics of shooting, the basics of passing and just getting those down. And you'll learn how to add in those wheelie turns and things later if you need them. Like, I, I mean, I do it every once in a while. I still don't do any hop turns or anything like that. Like, I think I'm doing perfectly well. Like, I don't think anyone's naming me like the best player, but I think that is also because I'm not flashy. Like, I'm not trying to do really cool yeah. stuff and have videos of it, you know? Like, <laughs> I'm just trying to have a tight outlet pass. I'm trying to hold on to the ball an extra half a second to where my teammate can get free when I'm getting double teamed. Like just knowing those small things has been yeah. my strength. And I think our strength as a whole as a team, we don't have stats in bike polo and we definitely don't have advanced stats in bike polo, but I'd be very interested to see those impact numbers. Like definitely you know, yeah. looking at some other games, like what is actually who has actually having the biggest impact on the court. Is it these flashy players or is it these more like cerebral players? Well, I, I can tell you having, cause we brought the camera, we brought some cameras to smack in the middle and we haven't been able to, like, I'm still putting the footage together, but it is a little uncomfortable watching my games where I recognize I'm, I, I practice so much of the like wheelies and other things. And, uh, you know, comparing myself to my teammate, Patty, Patty did none of the fancy shit and just, she broke defenses way more consistently than I did because yeah. it was just knowing where to put the ball, how to roll forward, how to not try to shoot through two bikes, um, which I did way too much of, but yeah, <laughs> just having, uh, I, like you said, it's just that, that knowledge, that awareness. Yeah. I mean, a lot of fundamental practice is boring and I definitely don't do it as much as I should these days, but I, I did it back in the days when I was way more obsessed with bike polo and, you know, back in the days when I'd go out and we'd all go play even if it's raining out but those days might be behind me now but i spent a lot of time <laughs> in those days you know working on passing and working on you know just like shoot drills pass drills dribble drills that weren't that had nothing to do with pivots had nothing to do with yeah. wheelie turns it had nothing to do with you know scooping the ball and those things can be valuable like they can be helpful but you can't jump from one to seven. You got to get one through six first, and then you can get to seven and see the value of what seven has to offer. Yeah, absolutely. One more thing I want to bring up with Javier, and we're almost done here. Don't worry. But uh, I could talk forever. It doesn't make a difference to me. Okay, thank you for that. <laughs> You're also a reality TV star. And I think that's a really important conversation to have. So what show were you on? I just want to hear a bit about this experience. Yeah, so I was on season two of Holy Moly, which is like an extreme mini golf show. Uh, it airs on ABC in the US. Not sure what it airs in other countries. What episode are you on in, in season two, just in case people want to look it up and see? Do you know? Yeah, I was on season two of Holy Moly, episode three. Oh, this is the Steph Curry show, right? Yes, Steph Curry. Is, Sorry, I mean, this is yeah. the this is the Aaron Hand show. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> So when I was filming mine, so this was like early 2020, like February, like COVID was kind of a thing you heard about that was happening 
elsewhere, but it hadn't really quite hit the US yet. Like, I think my flight home was, you know, one within like the week before things like completely shut down in California. Like I flew out to California for um, the recording of the episode. And (laughs) so, yeah, it was just a crazy kind of like last hurrah experience right before COVID shut down and all the Steph Curry stuff at the time, he he wasn't even there because of a COVID, I would imagine. Like if you watch uh, season two, like on season one, he's there and he's actually doing some of the holes with people. But on season two, he's just, uh, I think they just have his voiceover because he <laughs> wasn't able to come because of COVID. But yeah, it was a, it was a wild experience. I'm sure if people can find it online, but the hole I had to do. So it's extreme mini golf. All the holes are like really crazy. Like um, you have to hit a ball and then run through an obstacle course to get to the hole kind of thing. It's the American Ninja of mini golf. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. And for my hole, I had to like, like the hole was behind me and I had to hit up a giant ramp and have it ramp over my head and go onto like the green on the other side. (laughs) And so after you hit the ball over, then there's a platform, like a narrow platform you have to run across to get to like where the green is and there's water underneath it. So if you fall in, you get a stroke penalty. And also (laughs) at the same time, they have these like three giant water cannons, like shooting water at you, like super high (laughs) pressure, um, trying to knock you off of there. But yeah, so when they film these things, you'll, you'll notice if anybody watches the episode or the show, like the background is just like completely black. And that's because they film it in the dead of night. So (laughs) they pulled me from my hotel to take us to the studio at like 2 p.m. And I didn't start filming my hole until like 4 a.m. And we were just like sitting in this like tent, maybe the size of a (laughs) polo court. They have like a couple tables. They have like some DVDs on TV and some snacks. And like we weren't allowed to leave that tent unless we had to go to the bathroom. Like, and it was very strict. Like you had to just sit in there. So I was just like sitting in this tent all day with these other people, just kind of meeting random weirdos from around the country who wanted to be on this crazy. Other holy moly contestants. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Everyone has like a character, like you have to have to get on the show kind of thing. Like when you send in like an audition tape, you have to have like a character in mind and being from Portland and riding bikes. I just went with like hipster bike rider and in my like audition tape, it's me playing on a mini golf course. And there's some footage of me like on the bike polo court, hitting a golf ball around with my mallet and, you know, just kind of being like a silly bike hipster or whatever, you know, (laughs) just trying to build into the persona and, uh, yeah so that's kind of what i went with and you know there's tons of people like the person i played against was just like his persona was just like bro so we had like three popped collars and like a backwards uh visor kind of thing and (laughs) yeah they just made people like create a persona and then that's kind of what you went with there yeah classic reality tv exactly that sounds like a lot of fun to be a part of i don't know about sitting in the tent for 10 plus hours (laughs) and just watching dvds on a tv i hope it was a big tv did, did uh, they have crafty though you had like all all the lacrosse they had some food i can't remember what they had the good welches did you get the welches fruit snacks these are all the like film set jokes you know? yeah the, they probably the did 
I remember we had Domino's. We had Domino's pizza. Ooh, pizza. Pizza got a meal. That's rough. No, pizza's rough, man. It takes the gas out of you. <laughs> but yeah, it was it was kind of hard because, you know, sitting there all day and then we didn't start filming until 4 a.m. Yeah, I was definitely exhausted and it was hard to compete. I'm sure that's what they probably want out of it, too, is like how tired can these people get and then how silly can, you know, we make them look on TV because they're tired and, you know, on this <laughs> weird obstacle course. Yeah, I mean, it makes yeah. for an entertaining show and I've watched a bit of it. I think I actually watched your piece and I'm having a hard time remember, but it, they definitely like play up the zaniness of your character yeah. and they like, he's a bike pole player and like all this stuff. It's kind of interesting and fun. Yeah, and the, on the, I said I had to like walk across the platform. Like I didn't make it across. Like a couple times I'd fell and I caught myself and uh, when I fell, you know, it's kind of like, I didn't like rack myself. It's not that small, but I like caught myself. It's soft, but they like made like an impact noise and they made a noise that kind of was like, Ugh, that like I definitely <laughs> did not do, but they, you know, they added those in there to make it sound like I was like getting oh, hurt yeah. a lot more than I was. As, as someone that edits some of that stuff, you're just like, Oh yeah, this guy did this. This guy did that. <laughs> like <laughs> They have a whole library from, yeah. of sound effects to make it seem intense. I'm sure. Oh, yeah, that's exactly. Awesome that's such a funny thing about holy moly and i mean i encourage our listeners to watch that because it's pretty entertaining especially the air and hand episode you got to watch i don't know about the rest of it but for you and bike polo what do you kind of see as your personal goals in bike polo moving forward where do you want to go from here i mean i i love more sugar and i i'm excited to see where we go with that team obviously like we've got third place at na's gotten that a few times now we've gotten fourth place at worlds like i think that i want to win na's i want to win worlds i think we like you said earlier like we kind of have some momentum behind our back and i think we have a chance to do it and i'm really excited to you know try to reach that goal of being north american champion being you know world champion i think that we have the ability to do it like yeah, we were the only team to tie the Mongrels at Worlds last year or la whenever the last Worlds was. And Emmett, I mean, I don't know if he says this to everyone, but he was like, that was the hardest game we've played. I really thought we could have lost that game. Like, it sounded like he was definitely afraid to play us. And I wish we could have met him in the finals that year because I think we definitely could have given a run for their money. So I think we have what it takes to, you know, be at the top. It's just a matter of getting there. It's funny hearing you say like, oh, you know, we've come fourth at Worlds and third at NAs. Like, you know, obviously you've been there long enough that like you want to progress from there. But I'm hearing that and I'm just like, man, mission accomplished. Like, <laughs> you know, it's like all that's about the, where you are. Though. Yeah. <laughs> and like once you reach that, I mean, as competitive athletes, I'm sure everyone on that team is like, I want to get that next spot. I want to go that next rung on the ladder. I mean, Diego's openly said on our podcast, my goal is to win worlds. Like that's what yeah. I want to do. And I think it's amazing that it sounds like everyone on the team so far, we don't know about the other two, but is on the same page as far as that's concerned. And I think you guys can do it too. I really do. Coming out of the pandemic, I think a lot of things are going to change. And I don't see like with some of the other big NAs teams taking a step back, I don't like. I don't know what our teams are going to be there at NAs. I think you guys might have the most continuity. Maybe Super Polo would be in that conversation too. Mm -hmm. But the continuity piece is definitely going to be on your side. Yeah, I mean, I, I, 
I've heard rumors just because, you know, being in Cascadia and where a lot of the good teams, no offense, but a lot of the good teams are coming from, just like mm -hmm. hearing what teams are being put together there. I think there's going to be some good, uh, other good teams. But I, like you said, like we have the history behind our back. Like me, Diego, and Pete have been playing together now for a number of seasons. And like we are so comfortable with each other. And we're hoping the other whoever we pick up for the other two will be you know kind of in that same spot like have the same goals as us and be people we're comfortable at playing with and you know maybe people we've played with the pickup or other tournaments quite a bit so crossing our fingers that it all works out and i think na's this year is going to be in Folsom again i hear what the rumors are i'm not sure if that's been released yet i don't think but that's the rumors of where it's going i don't to think be. it has we, we don't have to include that that's <laughs> okay that doesn't matter yet i've heard I've heard other rumors about other okay. places that have put in bids. So yeah. I know of at least two other cities that have at least inquired about hosting NAs. All I can say and is that I hope, it's in the at, States, so. I hope it's at Folsom or somewhere like that where the courts are large because the size of the Commonwealth Classic Court is perfect. The court at Folsom is the exact same size and they're great. I think last year in Seattle, like I'm so glad they stepped up to host. I say last year as in like it just happened, but you know well, what I mean? The last NAs. Yeah, the yeah. last NAs in Seattle, like those courts are too small for bike polo. Like you can't establish things. It's just so much harder to play on. And it's, I want to see bike polo succeed. And to do that, I think you need a bigger court. And I think that gives, you know, it's just a fair advantage for people to show their skills on the court and not just, you know, one person kind of running things on a small court. But yeah. It's so, funny. I th yeah. I think it's the opposite in Canada because we have such a critical mass of NHL hockey rinks. Yeah, that we have <laughs> so many courts that are like way too big. <laughs> like there is another end of that spectrum, <laughs> and I think like a lot of our game, we end up with kind of like dumb dump and chase stuff. And I'm like in my head, I'm like, no, I want a smaller court. But you know, that's where we started it, off. It gets in, too small. Yeah, in Columbia, where I started, like. On Wednesday nights, we would play on a parking garage at like a really small court. And then on Sundays, we'd go, I don't know. I don't know if it was NHL size, but it's definitely bigger than than uh, Boston's court. It's definitely bigger than the one in Folsom. Like it was a giant court where it was just like mm -hmm. dump and chase. And when I was there, I hosted, a, it was called the Wingman Tournament. It was 4v4 tournament, like four players on the court on each team because the court was so big. And I felt like, I don't know if you all have done that yet, but it's a lot of fun. It has yeah. a whole new element to it, but yeah, so definitely that size of court is too big, but there are hockey courts that are smaller that are like the perfect size for like ball hockey or like, roar hockey yeah, courts. Yeah. yeah. The, the small, small hockey courts I think are perfect. And then you have good boards. And to me, that's actually the, yeah, the biggest exactly. thing is just like, yeah, having boards, you can like actually scrape your bars on or like fall into and it's, it's fine. You just push back off or they give realistic bounces like consistently chain yeah, link actually makes a huge difference it makes a huge i'm a big difference. fan of the chain link myself <laughs> love getting your handlebars i love the cheese grater effect yes. yeah. <laughs> if you can if you can ride your handlebar through chain link then you deserve to stay up <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. it just changes the way you play in a big way but uh so that's kind of your personal goal for bike polo yourself but where would you like to see bike polo go Obviously, medium-sized courts, but what else comes to mind? <laughs> yeah, I mean, consistent courts, which is a hard issue. Um, I know it's not possible, but like I was, for the longest time, I, I mean, I still advocate for it, but having NAs at the same place every year, same time of year, every single year, 
giving people from you know around North America the ability to be like, okay, this tournament's going to be on this date at this same location every yeah. year. Yeah. You know, it gives it makes it more easy for people to plan out and travel and go in advance, and it also builds community within you know that city to where they might be able to you know get more for those facilities if it's happening every year like i know lexington bike polos kind of died out but they had like three perfect courts and they had good relationship with the city and with um like the local companies like the brewery and the restaurant right there like if they had NAs there like every year, like that would just keep growing and they would get more people like in the community interested and happy. And yeah, I mean, that's one thing I would love to do. I know it's not the easiest thing to do, but I think yeah. of, I used to work for this. So I used to work for this marketing company that I was doing their social media and they hosted um, Sea Otter, which is like a big bike event. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it happens every year in monterey bay california and it's just grown over the years because they've been able to have it at the same area and they've been able to market it and like it's predictable when it's at the same area so i'd love to see that happen in bike polo i'd love to see like i think the the hardest thing is the moving na's every year like you don't get the like the government the local government and the local businesses don't see their return on investment because they see it happen once and then it disappears. And it's such a small event that it's not like, you know, like some Olympic event or something that's coming through and like hundreds of thousands of dollars are coming into the city. (laughs) Like there might be some additional beer sales at the convenience store down the road, but like outside of that, like the cities aren't seeing it. And I think it would really help clubs get established if it was like, here's something that's consistent every year. Well, and you can see what pedal junkies have been able to accomplish with Smack in the Middle and Jack the Dish. Like they have established this is the time of year they do their tournaments and they've built those relationships. And you can see, especially like having just gone to Smack, like people turn up for that tournament. They know it's going to be like, okay, start of the season. If you want to play everyone else that's trying to start the season off by playing the best teams in North America, they're going to be in Fresno in April, you know? And, uh, well, I now know. <laughs> this this comment reminds me a lot of, um, I'm going to reveal a bit about myself, but I used to be quite into extreme pogo sticking um, <laughs> and doing some cool tricks on pogo sticks. And the, the World Championships of pogo sticking and the World Series of pogo sticking, extreme pogo sticks, used to travel from different city to different city to different city to different city. And it actually, the traveling and the expense of working with all these different governments around the world in this case, and setting it up in different cities, bankrupted extreme pogo sticking. Mm -hmm. Now they run it in one city and I'm forgetting the name of it each year, the world championship. And it's really grown there. And I think it, there's a lot of parallels with the kind of fringe sport element of it all. Yeah. But what you get when you run it in the same cities, you get there's learning that happens every year amongst the hosts. There's relationships that get built, like you both mentioned, but all that learning stays in that one place. Mm -hmm. And that time you invested and the lessons you learn stays instead of having to reteach people how to throw massive tournaments every year, you can make sure you're holding a high quality event, right? It's, it's a good thought. I like that a lot. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of it came from like where bike polo came from. It came like the, especially like the early championships were centered around the North American courier or cycle courier championships. Mm -hmm. So they kind of, 
they kind of coincided with the couriers traveling around to these different cities for their knack um, races and things like that, which like knack races are great. You can travel those easily to different cities because, you know, you're going somewhere and then doing a scavenger hunt in a different city. Like you don't need <laughs> It would be weird to do it in the same city every yeah, year. Yeah, <laughs> that would be weird. And like you don't need like the, the infrastructure as much. Like you don't need like the support as much of the local community. Like that stuff definitely helps for them. But like, you can travel around and go to different cities and kind of do different things, but like what, for what bike polo is and needing like consistent court, a really good court, good boards, um, great surface to play on, you know, building fans in a place that, you know, might get people excited about bike polo. I think going the way of the extreme pogo sticking definitely is the way to take it is, you know, one, one city (laughs) kind of hosting something would be great. Yeah, for sure. Puts Any a lot of pressure other... on one club, but yeah. um, I definitely think there are ways to navigate that, especially if NAH um, has free time or you know, like understands what they're doing. And again, if you have a year in advance and you know where it's happening every year, you can plan things out a little easier and yeah. delegate well, work and it, sooner. And if if everyone kind of knows where it is, then then people can even contribute and help take some of the stress off that club. Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's the larger goal. I, I've never thought of this before, but at least my immediate reaction is I think that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> but I, you know, it's got to be on the east side, right? Like Lexington would be okay, but like I'm not going to Seattle every year. Like <laughs> I always wanted it to be in Denver because like Denver is like a major airport hub and they have a lot of people, um, a lot of airlines flying in and out of there. Their club mm-hmm. is not the biggest. It's it, It's got some people in it, but like, I feel like as a as a central hub f- of an airline, which is the most important, if you know you're getting people flying from Mexico and Canada, then um, that could definitely work out. Yeah, for sure. What about play style? Are there changes you want to see there? Rules and what you'd actually like to see differences on the court? Yeah, definitely. So I think a lot of like my view of where I would love to see bike polo go, like play style or on the court, comes from just everything that happened in the pandemic. I think that the pandemic just really showed us how fragile we all are. And especially in the U S where we don't like have any health care, and like, it just really opened my eyes to the idea of how, you know, I mean, I've seen it happen to friends, my old uh, teammate drew Thomas on the prospectors in one season of bike polo. He racked up like, 12 grand in medical bills like like luckily he's a nurse and he had a good job and he knew how to take care of himself but that could like cripple so many people in bike polo like that medical debt or that injury Mm -hmm. could you know take people out and i think for me which is like i mean this is a complete 180 from where i was you know when i first started playing and even naming enforcer but i think that (laughs) I would like to see bike polo just do away with any kind of body on body contact at all. I think it's completely unnecessary for the sport. I get that we want to be cool like hockey and look tough, but I don't think it's necessary. I think that, you know, the top players in the world or the top teams, I should say, they don't need it. They're not even using it. I think there are a few goony players out there who are still using it at the top level in a really gross way. And I think then instead of like making rules around like how many penalties people can get before they're kicked out of a tournament, (laughs) like 
let's just think of everyone's humanity and think of how fragile all of our friends are in the community and just be like, why don't we just get rid of body on body contact, make it a safer sport, um, make yeah. it to where people want to play it and can play it and aren't afraid to get hurt or afraid of the medical bills that, you know, could take them out of their house or whatever. I mean, and getting rid of body on body, like it can be, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but like I think of when I think of contact sports, like there's hockey contact and then there's basketball contact. You yeah. Know? And like you can say basketball is not a contact sport, but like if you look at the professional level, totally like, yeah, there's still contact that happens, but it you're not whack. Like you can't just legally wind, you know, gather a bunch of steam and be like, well, it was high and even, even though I like yeah. sent him, <laughs> you know, sprawling exactly, or whatever. Yeah. Um, but for what it's worth, I think at the polo level, I, I think it's been years since I've seen like I've actually seen a lot of plays where I think people deliver a hard high even check and they just get called for it now. And I'm kind of part of me is like, I don't think that was technically against the rules, but also I would call that too, because like you shouldn't be hitting people that hard. And I think oh, like man, that's, I, yeah, I, still kinda, I think we've kind of seen that work its way into the competitive, but I'm I'd be OK with that getting getting actually codified into the rules. But it's yeah. funny, I was talking to Dan last night. I picked him up from the airport coming back from No Fun City. And one of the things he said, or that we were saying, um, it's the same thing that you were saying, that I don't need to see someone do something six times before they get thrown out of a tournament. Yeah, exactly. Like, I, I think if someone does something egregious once, that's more than enough to yeah. throw them out of the game. And if, if there's a real worry that it's going to happen again then like you don't have to play with that person yeah yeah i mean i think it comes back to like we keep comparing ourselves to hockey and like we still i know joe uses a lot of hockey rules and probably basketball rules but it's like mm -hmm. none of us are getting paid for this we're all putting our own money into this like someday we could have this resurgence of phbp and you know we're getting paid for it but i don't think that's going to ever happen and we're not getting paid enough for someone to cream me on the cord and i have internal yeah. bleeding that i'm like do i need to get this look at or is this giant bruise just going to go away on its own and i just hopefully it goes away on its own because i don't have the money to go to the you know the the quick med to go have them look at it kind of thing and it's just like granted i don't think that's happened a lot but the pandemic has just opened my eyes and hopefully other people's eyes to how fragile we all are and how few people especially in the u.s have access to good health care in a way to where if we did get her, like we could afford to take care of it. Yeah. I think we're very privileged in Canada to think we don't necessarily think of these things sometimes when we get injured, but there's a large swath of our friends in the States that have to. And it's something that I think needs to inform the rules because especially in NAH, I mean, the majority of players are in the States. Like we got to be honest about that. I'm trying to think what this would look like. No contact, because I don't know if you'll ever be able to get rid of like, we're both going for the ball. We both have a line to it. We're going to brush shoulders against each other. Like that's always going to be think, in the game. I mean, that doesn't happen that often. I think it's more clear when, you know, people are like incidentally bumping into each other than someone writing up to you and then giving you a check, you know, like checking should just be like done for. And like, we have, you know, as you said earlier, the high and even like that's so arbitrary and it's just like we don't yeah, have proper so training to, to know what that yeah. even mm -hmm. means or what it looks like. Or the ref could be like, well, it looked like high and even to me and me 
riding on my bike, but like someone just clearly came in from behind on me and I just like got blindsided and literally yeah. flew off my bike, yeah. not expecting it. And it's just like, if you got rid of all body checks and someone just had to catch up and, you know, like poke check your mallet or someone had to like use their speed to get ahead of you. Um, that's something that yeah. like, just do that. Like you don't yeah. need to, just because you're bigger than me doesn't mean you should have an advantage. Like just because like, I mean, I just put on some COVID weight. So now I'm up to like 170. <laughs> but for the longest time, you know, I was like 155, 160, 6'1". Like that's real skinny. And I'm still yep. pretty skinny at 170. And it's just like, just because I'm a skinny person doesn't mean I should be in a disadvantage because someone... But that's my only me. advantage. Yeah. I think a lot of heavier set players would just do the counterintuitive and say like, well, and that means I have to carry on all this extra weight and I get no advantage from doing that. Why? <laughs> because I'm bigger. Should I have be at a disadvantage? You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. I mean, and it's tough with high and even because we have all different body shapes and sizes in this game. You've got people riding extra small bikes that are five foot four playing against people that are six one. Yeah, on, exactly. on 700s, bikes, on 700s. Yeah. and like how is it ever going to be high and even it doesn't make any yeah. sense but i i think yeah i i love the way bike pole is moving the direction of like people just aren't playing physically anymore and i love that but it'd be interesting to see i remember there was like one conversation i, th I think it was like post league of bike polo probably on like one Facebook group or maybe someone's Facebook posts where people were like, we should get rid of contact. And then everyone was like, no, you got to have the contact. That's like bike polo. And I, I was definitely on that side of like, no, that's what bike polo is. And I mean, I think the enforcer name definitely probably came from that like era of bike polo of like, you know, you have your tough person out there on the court, but I just don't think it's necessary. I've grown. Hopefully we've all kind of grown in our mindset from, eight years ago hopefully we're still not thinking like yeah i believe exactly everything i believed eight years ago i'm not willing to change anything <laughs> yeah like, i think as a society we've grown and i think as bike polo we can kind of grow from there too and and i think like the other area that it it really applies into that i don't think we've even seen the benefit of is when you first have that conversation with people or you show someone bike polo for the first time and you're trying to recruit them and it's like, oh, yeah, it's a contact sport. They're like, what? Yeah. Well, I'm not doing that. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Well, you the know? videos of like biggest crashes or checks. And then you're like, yeah. see, municipality like looks up bike pole because it's on the application. They see the video and like, we cannot, <laughs> you need to get the highest level of insurance to play this. And now your tournament <laughs> that could have cost you $300 to run costs you $750 to run. Yeah. I mean, I yeah. still think like some, some crashes will still happen. Like that's yeah. inevitable. Like people having their heads down when, you know, people they don't are going to go for the in ball front of them. That's, yeah. They're going to play hard. Handlebars are going to smash into each other at some point. Yeah. But there are ways to like prevent catastrophic injuries and, you know, people just going out there and being a goon, which is like, it's just yeah. so unnecessary in a sport where most of the people in the U S don't have good insurance and don't work. I mean, I don't know. I, I don't have like a demographic of all the players, but I feel like most of us are working class and most of us, you know, don't have a ton of money. It's just kind of like a sport of, you know, people who work at bike shops or whatever, you know, yeah. so yeah. even even the people that I think can afford it or even the Canadians that don't have to pay for our health care, like we don't want to get hurt either. Exactly. You know, no, yeah. no, nobody's out there like, oh, yeah, let me hurt. Let me get hurt. Yeah, exactly. I think one thing that I would like to see change too is like, I don't know how we haven't moved away from the joust yet. Like the fact that we yeah. we're still jousting is like insane <laughs> to me. Like that just seems like, su like such a dangerous thing to do. And we've established all these rules, but there's some of these like original OG rules that we just like can't do away from for some reason. It's just like, I get it. The joust is beautiful. I get it's like, 
you know, been inherited in bike polo, but surely there's like a safer, like joust from the blue line where people don't have as much momentum or, you know, like joust from the sidewall as opposed to the far wall, just something that, you know, I have an idea. Yeah. It'd be interesting to enact like a joust line. That's like a yeah. bike path mm. line. You know what I mean? So like we yeah. have the, obviously the cross court half line, but another line that runs parallel to the court in the middle. And you know that both players have to cross on each side of it. You know what I mean? Just some little mm-hmm. visual guide could be helpful. Cause I think uh, the yeah. joust is a very dramatic and unique way to start a game that other sports don't have. And it could be a lot safer. Like if people didn't cross the line, it's, but even then like our, uh, Tyler broke his chain. I've had in, that in happen our, yeah. in our joust. And like yeah. there, there's certain things that's not even contact related. It's like what happens when you start a game by sprinting as hard as you possibly can towards someone else. Like, and it doesn't give teams time to set up. Like it just, it, it kind of, it does really start the game off on the most, the craziest, wildest variable. Right. But like, the I do think it's cool. Like you said. Yeah. But if, the yeah, there definitely off. are. Yeah. That could happen on a stretch pass or a race to the corner. Like it happened to me the other day. Remember my chain popped off and I went yeah. tumbling Yeah, and that was just a sprint for the ball at another point in a game. Um, Cause I got beat on defense and then I had <laughs> to get back in the play. So my chain popped off at full speed sprints, you know? And I just don't know if we're going to be able to completely do away with that. And I think there's other smaller things. I don't know. I'm a big fan of the joust. I'm not ready. Here's to what I'll say. Face offs are cool. That that's no, the big thing not. that changes it. That's I don't think I'm for face offs. That's like I don't want to be hockey. Like we can do. I'm totally fine with like a shorter joust. Like I have a joust from the blue do a tip line. Tip off like basketball. That seems safer. Tip off. <laughs> oh, we we'll have a kickoff like in football. <laughs> Just like I mean, oh, yeah. I'm, again, I'm fine with the joust from the a big shorter distance. Off? I don't know what that what that is. <laughs> How is about that the this? kickoff equivalent? Yeah, everyone starts standing on the opponent's side the of the half start. and their bikes are all behind the net and the ball's in the middle. So you have to run, get your bike, get on and you know, Le Mans start to never. Okay. See if we, there's lots of crazy ways we could start off that are unique, but <laughs> yeah, surely there's a safer one out there. And interesting. <laughs> all right. Well, Aaron, thanks so much for coming on. We've talked for a long time and, uh, I think it's been really great conversation. I can't say that I got bored a single time and that's awesome. So just on behalf of everyone here at the Northside Polo Podcast and all our listeners, thank you so much for everything that you do for bike polo, from playing awesome games that we get to watch, from being friendly with other people at tournaments on the courts to having Enforcer doing what it's doing and coming on our podcast. Just thank you a million times over. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm glad I finally got to get on here. Appreciate it. Yeah. And like, I... I just have to keep i don't think we can stress it enough like you doing what you do with the with the enforcer brand and like supplying bikes in the way that you do i think makes polo accessible for so many of these communities and the working like like we were saying you know the working class players that can't drop a thousand dollars on a bike can get they can get machinery that that is it works and it does the thing and um i think all of us on here know it makes a huge difference like when you get so much right equipment yeah it just gets you it's a polo like having a polo bike really does make a huge difference and like i am convinced that without enforcer half the players on dedicated polo bikes now just wouldn't be and they might not even be in the sport because it's a lot more fun when you have that bike yeah again shout out marino for giving me the opportunity and being so trusting in me and building in a great relationship and i know we're wrapping up but five year goal i'd say is like trying to find a 26 inch polo bike complete from china 
that I could get in people's hands. So people, I mean, there's a big barrier buying wheels, buying cranks that are hard to do. And I want to get, you know, newbies on bikes easier, more affordably, quicker. So that's five years old for sure. That'd be so cool. All right. Well, thanks again. Yeah. Thank you you for sure. Thank you. Bye. 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 Okay. And we're back. So Aaron hand guys, what do you think? Unbelievably I... cool. Yes. <laughs> I haven't heard it yet. I wasn't there if you couldn't tell. Absolutely not. But Alex and I were, <laughs> and even though we're recording this before Liam's heard the interview, I he knows it's good. Oh, for sure. I mean, Aaron I don't is... I don't have an enforcer, but they sick. And and more sugar is cool. Why don't we get to that segment that everyone wants to hear? You know the one I'm talking about, Liam. Yep. It's the mailbag. Mailbag. We got a light one this week. We've got two emails, two very short and sweet emails. Uh, and we got, um, <laughs> sorry, I was just reading the end of this one first. We got Rob Wood coming out of Grand Rapids, Michigan. Oh, yeah. My teammate Rob for Wood. Rumble. Shout I hope you're Rob listening Wood. to this on the drive. What's he up, says, buddy? hey, teammates, past, present, and future. I would love to hear what you think are some bad habits of a lot of polo players have, both as individuals and in a team dynamic. And what are some good habits to build? P.S. I miss I miss the first ten to fifteen episodes where you mentioned Grand Rapids bike polo and Halloween each episode. <laughs> do we actually do that? I don't think we do. We definitely uh, did do that for the first ten or fifteen. And I oh, the first ten of the episodes. Them. Yeah, I thought he mentioned like every 10, 15 minutes. No, <laughs> about it, it wasn't don't. that bad. It wasn't that bad. But a lot of you know, the episodes... we did go to Halloween. I don't know if y'all know that this. One time, yeah. that in, one 20, time. in 2019, we actually won that tournament. I don't know if people have Yeah, heard. I don't know if people know that. I almost uh, forgot. No. Shit, yeah. <laughs> well, let's dive into this. What are some uh, bad habits you see out there on the court? Let's do that first. Okay, okay. I, I have one I really want to talk about. Bad habits off the court. And this is a brand new one. This is actually Rob has committed a terrible habit uh, that prior to about a week ago, you couldn't have even committed. And that is sending the same podcast question to multiple bike polo podcasts. I don't know if anyone listened to Before the Joust this week, but he asked them the same thing. Laziness. So, we're not your sloppy seconds, Rob. Come on. This is this is a bad habit. People, if you're going to, you know, at least come up with different questions if you're going to email multiple polo podcasts here. Ben, beggars multiple. can't be choosers. <laughs> we're out here. We're out here begging for emails. I, I, I'm not one to turn away questions, okay? Should we just start answering the questions that, uh, the other podcast get, gets asked. We can just oh. listen to their episode this week. Yeah, a segment then... called "You Didn't Ask, but we're going to tell you anyway." Yeah. Oh, I like that. Ooh, wow. That's a polo explaining. A yeah. little bit of unsolicited question yeah, answering. Yeah. This week, someone asked Pete and Chris and Diego for advice, and uh, we're going to let you know what we think about it. <laughs> I would say off court, uh, drinking too much beer, playing Chunderstruck. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Bad habits, absolutely. Well, I I actually took some time and thought about this question a little bit as far as bike pole. And I thought of um, two bad habits that I see a lot of when I'm watching polo players. And one of them is on the defensive end and one of them is on the offensive end. So on the defensive end, I've harped on this before, but just like super aggressive defense, just rushing at the player head on almost as quick as you can, with not much plan for if they get around you, how you're going to get back in the play. Usually when you're playing defense, unless you're deep in their end and you have time to, you know, get yourself back in the play, 
you want to kind of have your front wheel facing your own net so you can kind of pedal it with the offensive player and cut them off and not, you know, get yourself out of the play completely by getting blown by. So that's one. Mm. And I've said that one before, but number two is one. I don't think I've actually said much on this podcast. Dabbing. <laughs> if dabbing could be avoided yes <laughs> it's a bad habit no this one i thought about was when you have the ball thinking you have to do something with it that's a yeah. bad habit people have so many I'm players when they get the ball like put pressure on themselves to actually do something with it and you don't have to if you have the ball in your possession turns out your team is winning that is a position of power and advantage that you've created Make the other team do something to get that ball from you. So how this plays out in games often from what I see is player gets the ball. I'm like, oh my gosh, I got the ball. I got to get to the other side of the court. So they just drive up along the side of the boards and put themselves in the other team's corner and the play just stops. Another way this happens is that immediately when they get the ball, they pass it to someone else. And passing is only good if you're passing to a player who's going to be in a position of advantage when they get the ball. But if no one's around me and I get the ball and I pass it, I'm probably passing it to someone who's covered when I wasn't covered. So take the time with the ball, make the other team come towards you to get the ball and then pass it to someone who's open. Hmm. Patience with the ball and respecting your own ability to possess the ball and maintain it and shoot the shot and score if you need to is super important because that's how you pull the defense. I'll say it come people come by it honestly like i definitely was guilty of this at smack in the middle and and a big part of it like you're saying respect your ability to hold on to the ball well when you're looking across the the court at hammersley tyler and gabe or some of the lineups that were down there like it it's hard to have confidence in yourself that like i can hold on to the ball against players of that caliber when they're when they're pressuring you like that but you know when i go back and look at the video i really should have been a little more conservative with trying to make plays because mm. there were it, it's better to make them take it from you even if someone's better and that's the advice we've given people before even if you're playing players that you know are better than you make them be better than you don't just walk don't just like fall over make them walk over you you know yeah. make them if, if they're gonna if you think they're really good and they can score on you make them score on you but don't don't just like fall out or do don't fall out of the way or try to do something crazy and and not even play defense on them. Like do what do what you can make them be better than you. And then, you know, you'll, you'll only yeah. get better with time. And this is just a simple thing I see a lot of intermediate players doing where, you know, they have all the moves. They can move with the ball. They can maybe do a wheelie turn. They can pass. They can shoot. And they just don't trust themselves in the play, especially at the tournament level to say, hey, I have the ball you know what, I'm just going to slowly roll up the court and look for my options and make the defense respect me and then do something. You have time and you have space. And the more you use that time and space, that tempo, the bigger an advantage you can build for yourself. And even more importantly, the more time you patiently hold onto the ball and try to think about what you can do, you're giving the defense time to make a mistake, turn around and come at you in the wrong way, which sometimes happens. People get antsy or they think I'm probably better than this player and they just try to steal it from you. And then it's like, well, maybe you are better than me overall, but this isn't a better play and you can actually get by them. Yeah. Any other bad habits you want to talk about? Uh, eating pizza on the podcast. Eating pizza on the podcast. What about good habits people should build? Because I thought about one too there. 
Maybe I'm talking a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't yeah. know if that's good. Sometimes I'm like, maybe I should be yelling more. Or not yelling. I should be announcing more. I think for I sure. Or whatnot. Or like mostly, but it's mostly when you're behind someone, you're just like, I'm behind you. I got the ball. Or down the boards, front of the boards. Maybe you need a code language, some code. I'm very vocal when I play. For better like, you know, or worse. In, in football, when they have the audibles, you know, it could be like, blue 42 or something. I don't know. Yeah, I, like I, I agree completely. Like, maybe not as much the code words that can be confusing, <laughs> but like, yeah, confusing for a, the opposition. Bike pull is a hard game. So, when you're trying to control the ball and you're looking at defenders coming up, sometimes it's hard to keep track of where your own teammates are. And that little verbal cue can be really helpful in figuring out where they are and knowing where the pass options are. Mm-hmm. Maybe Absolutely. being more, you got to like be more uh, specific about areas you are because mm-hmm. it could be like center and then it's like well where in the center i don't know centered towards the net yeah you definitely need to share language way back you know versus but you know it's so fast it's hard to it's hard to get it down so quickly i would just yeah, yeah focus on doing it more whatever it is yeah well i i would say for my good habit that people should get in um just practicing getting your back wheel against the post, being able to mm. go front wheel against the post and then quickly get across and get your back wheel against the post. You basically can't do it fast enough. You will always be trying to do it faster and you will always be trying to do it while having your head up and having an active mallet or something. Like you're always going to be in a position where you're trying to do this under duress because you're trying to do it and not get scored on and you're trying to do it faster than the person can the person with the ball can get there and like being able, it's just a little thing you can practice mechanically, whether it's pushing, locking your front brake and pushing off or hopping back because you're clipped in, whatever you do, just practice that like from post to post, being able to shut the front door, shut the back door. Super, super effective. Yeah. Yeah. My good habit that I want to bring up is something that I saw Brett from bug or St. Louis do a lot of and that is when you collect the ball along the boards try to get yourself back into the center of the court when you're in the center of the court you can turn left or right so it actually doubles the amount of directions you can go whereas if you're against the boards you can only turn one direction because the boards are on the other side of you and as a defender it's a lot harder to guard someone in space than when they're against the boards it just gives you more options so get the ball along the boards try to get to the center of the court and then make your decisions if it's possible Mm-hmm. yeah and that starts before you even collect the ball and brett's a really good example of that you can see he'll look at the ball see where it is and then sometimes change his direction and take the long way to getting the ball so that he has the room to come back off the wall and and be able to turn in so it looks a little weird it looks like oh he's resetting before he even gets the ball and it's like yeah because he wants space to be able to maneuver when he actually approaches the defense he isn't just getting the ball and then going, Oh crap. Now I'm stuck on the wall with it. Yeah. Very cerebral player. Very cerebral. Um, what's his next email? Next email is from Ben from Boston. Shout out once again to Ben. And he writes, Hey y'all wondering what aluminum, sorry, aluminum 700 C polo frames are out there besides the max power. Um, Trek T1. I think that's the that's one of them. Yeah, oh, that's, <laughs> the, that's the email. That's the yeah. email. Sorry, that's it. So um, there's the Trek T1. 
Trek T1. Classic. There's the like crew these bikes. Yeah, the crew districts, track, um, track frames. Those are those seem pretty popular. Yeah, the leaders. Honestly, I feel like any 700 yeah. frame that has an aggressive geometry, people will play polo on. And I've got all that. All the uh, aluminum ones are light. The concepts are really popular. That's 600. That's 26. That's is it? Yeah. My work bike is a giant. That giant Bowery. That's a, yeah, that's aluminum, but I don't know if that tight. would pull very well. I think it would be pretty decent. It's the the chain stays on that bike aren't quite as short as like the Trek T1 or some of the uh, crew bikes that Hammersley rides all the time. Um, the leaders I've seen used pretty well by like Julia in Grand Rapids or Brett yep. that we just talked about uses a leader frame. And then, of course, the new enforcers that might be coming out soon are something to keep an eye on if you can wait that long. Enforcer in X 700? Granada. Yes, yeah. aluminum oh. enforcers in 700. Oh, was that Aaron in just talked about it in the interview. Oh, shit. Okay. But um, yeah, I don't know if there's really that much in terms of uh, 700C. I mean, that's a lot of options. There's basically any 700. Sorry. Yeah, you're right. Basically any <laughs> aluminum 700C track frame is a decent option. It's just, the real The real question is like, what are the welds like? Because... Most of the time, those frames are built to go fast, and you care for polo, not to crash. You care a lot more about yeah, like the durability on those frames, um, and the head tube, the head tube angle. That's the big one. A lot of them sometimes they get raked out pretty far, even for track frames. Like they, we want the twitchiest of geometry usually for polo. So the max power is yeah, they've got the one seven hundred C. I don't know if I've ever ones. seen that bike for in i've always i've seen the the 26 inch yeah as as we pointed ones. out on the interview with aaron north sides is just all enforcers pretty much yeah or more or less yeah they've got the corner on the market um so yeah i hope that answers your question ben is the rum runner aluminum no that's a steel yeah yeah there's lots of steel 700s too which steel honestly is real i I'm kind of a fan of the steel frames, to be honest. I still, I still like them. Yeah, you can still go fast on steel bikes. Steel Absolutely. frame carbon wheels—that's the way to go. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess that kind of brings it to the end, eh? That's the end of our outline here, at least. Um, any last words from either you two? Uh, you remember that time we went to uh, Grand Rapids and oh my god, and people are gonna it was like kind of rainy on the first day, and like. <laughs> kind of rainy he's got to give rob his money's worth on this email you know? it's true well we're going to be seeing rob this weekend and then rob and lost and... the beer challenge whatever it was oh the yeah end, the shotgun oh, dispute to finish that was that did. did we'll be seeing rob this weekend at rumble by the river and we hope to see you there if you're listening to this as you're driving thank you so much you know what in fact if you're still just listening to this at this point thank you so much because this is not one of our shorter episodes by any means Oh no. <laughs> Thank you so much. If you want to leave us a rate and review on whatever streaming service you're using to listen to this podcast, please do. It really helps us out with some of those algorithm things. And uh, yeah, we'll see you on the court hopefully really soon because tournaments are popping up faster than pimples on my face. Yeah. Actually, if you really <laughs> want to support the podcast, uh, you can go message before the joust on Instagram and let them know how much you love the Northside's Polo podcast. Oh, what? <laughs> <laughs> Alex, trying to try, trying to start a war here, Alex. <laughs> to all members of Beyond the Joust, this is all Alex's personal. <laughs> Gavin wrote that in the outline. What? I do not speak. 
Wise. Anyways, I'm going to cut this off before Alex slanders my character any further. Thank you so much again, all you Polo listeners out there. We appreciate each and every single one of you. Have a good week. We'll see you on the court soon. Bye for now. Bye. Peace. What's I supposed to do? Meet you on the polo court. You like YOLO, rock that sport. Take the mallet in your righty and the left squeeze breaky tighty. You all high and mighty. Every Thursday nighty. Wheeling, jousting, 3v3. Come on, rip that PVC. Courts, I grab a brew. Let that conversation stew. Wonder where the cuckoo flew. That bird up in Hillcrest. Miss.